0: Welcome to SkyWave Audio Theatre. I'm Norman Gilliland. There's a long tradition of English journalists reporting on the burgeoning American Republic, Charles Dickens most famously, in 1842. And in that tradition, J.B. Kendall is the visitor to the United States in that eventful year of 1876. It was the year of the close and crooked contest between Samuel Tilden and Rutherford B. Hayes for the presidency, the year of the United States Bicentennial, and the year of Custer's Last Stand at the Little Bighorn. Some of the stories that Kendall covered, though, were smaller, such as the story of the librarian. And he is quite a character, too. This is John Daner as J.B. Kendall, the Frontier Gentleman from October 5, 1958.
1: Last week, I reported an incident involving a gold mining claim. This is the story of an altogether different type of claim.
2: Frontier Gentlemen. Here with an Englishman's account of life and death in the West. As a reporter for the London Times, he writes his colorful and unusual stories. But as a man with a gun, he lives and becomes a part of the violent years in the new territories. In just a moment, we will bring you this latest report from the Frontier Gentlemen. Like a season ticket to the ballpark, CBS News admits you to every major event going on. Regular features like our World News Roundup broadcast seven mornings a week on most of these same stations make you spectator to the most spectacular events of our time. They take you right to where the news is happening. Let you learn the details from experts who've watched the news develop. Every morning on CBS Radio, join CBS News Correspondents on the World News Roundup for reports from the major news centers of the world. Now, starring John Daner. This is the story of J.B. Kendall, Frontier Gentleman.
1: On the western shore of the Missouri River in Dakota Territory is a town called Fort Pier. Across the river, a tiny wood-frame extension of Fort Pierre called, simply, Pierre. But it is here that the United States government has established a land office, and it was here that I journeyed in search of a story on homesteaders. The land office was closed, but a local citizen told me I might find homesteaders some 25 miles east of there. Instead, there was only desolation. And I was turning my horse for the trip back to Pier when the afternoon air was shattered by an exchange of gunshots. Riding towards a puff of smoke that rose from a dry wash some distance away, I found a woman who appeared to be in her middle 30s busily firing a rifle at a shack that stood some hundred yards beyond. You come out of that
3: cabin with your hands in the air while you can still walk. Do you need help? Don't come any closer, mister.
1: Uh, I'm not going to harm you.
3: I said, don't come any closer, I'll shoot.
1: Well, I'm sure you would, but you'd be making a mistake. Are you with him? I assume you're talking about the party you were shooting at in the cabin? No, I assure you I'm not with him.
3: It's a trick. You're on his side.
1: No, I happened to be in the area, heard the gunshots, and came over to investigate.
3: Are you sure?
1: I'm sure. You convinced?
3: Almost got you, didn't he? Better keep that long neck of yours down. But I'm not taking this rifle off you till I know who you are. What's your name?
1: J.B. Kendall.
3: What are you doing around here?
1: Uh, I'm, I'm a writer.
3: Mister, do you think I'm just fooling with you? No, 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 no,
1: not at all. I am a writer. I, I write for the London Times. I'm a correspondent. No,
3: you don't. You keep your hands where I can see them.
1: Miss, please believe me. If I could be of help, I want to, but a shotgun interrogation is hardly to my liking. Do you want to tell me what this is all about?
4: I don't
3: trust you. I'm not used to this kind of thing. People out here.
1: Something tells me Dakota Territory is a good deal west of your home.
3: My husband died in Massachusetts. I've just come from there.
1: I'm sorry. You haven't told me your name.
3: This is James Danworthy, Elmira Danworthy.
1: Mrs. Denworthy, what, what are you doing out here, besides trying to kill somebody? It's
3: not a joking matter, Mr.
1: Kenton. No, I didn't... My mean... husband
3: and I came west almost a year ago. We'd seen one of those advertisements in the Eastern Papers. they cheats, advertising towns in the West that don't even exist. Yes,
1: I've heard it of It took that. all
3: our money, which wasn't much. He'd been a soldier four years of war and several years after, and I was a librarian in Boston. I was 30 when I married him. I'd waited a long time for him to get his fill of the army. Then we came west, and nothing worked out. We'd paid for a house and lot in a town that didn't even exist. That was in Kansas. And
1: well, how did you happen to come to Dakota?
3: We wanted to get out of Kansas and heard about this homestead land here. It's kind of dry sometimes, but we liked it. I guess because we could have it. We preempted it right away and...
1: Preempted? If
3: you're 21, and a citizen, haven't borne arms against the United States, you can have 160 acres.
1: And you've got 160 acres?
3: If I'm living there a week from now, I have.
1: Oh? What
3: do you mean? You get six months to prove up on your land. When Jim took sick, we had three months more to go. I took him back to Massachusetts, but it was too late. He died there.
1: Ah, now you're back and somebody has moved in on your claim, is that it?
3: Yes. I have to be living here or I lose it.
1: I see. Do you know who the man is?
3: No. I just got here today. He chased me away. Said it was his place.
1: Have you talked to him? No. Just shooting at him?
3: Yes. He came out several times, but I couldn't hit him. I'd kill him if I could. Jim and I worked hard for this.
1: Why did you come back?
3: It was to be our home. Now it's... It was mine.
1: It's still yours. What are you going to do? Well, first take that rifle.
5: You're with him. You are. No. It's been a trick the whole
3: time. All of this
5: talk. No,
1: no. Now listen to me. I'm going up and talk to him. Get down. Look out.
3: You're not fooling me. He's just doing that. Trying to make me think he's shooting at you. You're together, stealing my land.
1: Get me that rifle. I'll
3: kill you for tricking me.
1: Wait. I'm going up there. I'll talk to him. Don't shoot. Don't shoot.
4: I'll kill you.
1: Toward the cabin. At any moment I expected gunfire, but nothing happened. I was such an obvious target that my hidden adversary must have been curious as to my intent. It was with a feeling of relief that I finally confronted this stranger in the cabin, a young man, but haggard and hungry looking. He stood in the doorway and waggled a long rifle barrel at me.
6: Well, look here. I got me a brave Yankee. Just dying to walk right down this squirrel gun. All right, stop in your tracks, Yankee. You move that rifle, you're one inch, I'll blow your innards out.
1: I have no quarrel with you.
6: Whoo ee. why, that ain't even a Yankee. Throw down that rifle.
1: No. I came to talk, not give up my gun. I told you, I have no quarrel with you.
6: I can shoot you down right now.
1: You could. And you'd never know what I have to say.
6: Mister, you got a lot of nerve walking up here.
1: No more than you have taking over the lady's claim.
6: That's what you want to say? You come here to say that?
1: I'm asking you to leave.
6: You got any shuck on you? Shuck? Cigarette makings. You got any? Yes. Hand them over. <laughs>
1: Is that an order or a request?
6: I'm telling you.
1: Did it occur to you that I may not like to take orders? That my rifle is covering you at this point?
6: <laughs> Mister, I've had every rifle in the Yankee Army on me one time or another. It don't make no do to me. Now give me the makings, if you can spare All right.
1: Yeah, catch You're pretty shaky, aren't you? You been ill?
6: No. No, I ain't sick. war left me that. Who's that lady? Your wife?
1: No, just a friend.
6: You better tell her to leave me alone. I could kill her easy, but I assume not.
1: Look, you seem like a decent sort. Why don't you saddle up and ride on? This lady is a widow. She and her husband built this place.
6: Mister, now you get this and you get it straight. I spent four years sharpening my eye on Yankees during the war. Now it's over, and we're all supposed to be friends again. But it don't work that way, see. Now, I've had a saddle thrown on me in every town west of the Mississippi and north of Arkansas. I got a hole in my neck to chase the plow, but the Yankees won't let me have no land legal like. So I found this one, and I'm taking it. You hear me?
1: Then you'd rather steal this land from a widow.
6: Yankees are the best widowmakers I know, Mister.
1: The war is over.
6: Is it not in my, go on. Leave me be. Go on, get out of here.
1: You are sick, aren't you? (laughs)
6: Leave me be, I said. Now get. Next time you come back, I'll kill you.
3: I never expected you to come back.
1: Did you really think I was in partnership to steal your property?
3: I don't know. I saw you talking to him. I thought... I understand. Who is he?
1: Warsick Confederate soldier.
3: Can we get him out?
1: And I don't want to shoot him. He's had enough of that. Now we'll go to the land office and Pierre. They'll see you get it back legally.
7: Good morning, folks.
1: Good morning. I'm Mr. Kendall, and this now,
7: is. Now, now, don't tell me, don't tell me. This is the charming Mrs. Kendall.
1: <laughs> no, this is Mrs. Danworthy.
7: Uh, Mrs. Danworthy? Bartley Quill, United States land agent par excellence, your humble servant, madam.
3: Yes. How do you do, Mr. Quill?
7: Now, you folks are desirous of locating a nice homestead in the area, is that correct? Uh, no, Mr. Quill. It will Quill. cost you 50 cents. Mm. I shall have my assistant, Mr. Todd, bring forward the necessary papers. If you can't read, I'll help you. Mr. Todd? Yes, sir.
1: Uh, Mr. Quill, please listen. Your servant, sir. <laughs> yes, sir. Well, then? Um, yes, well, Mrs. Danworthy and her late husband already have a homestead claim some
7: 25 miles east of here. Oh, A widow, madam, I am sorry. Mr. Todd, never mind. Yes,
3: sir. Mr. Kendall, maybe I'd better work this out my own way.
7: Work what out, madam?
3: There's a claim jumper on my property.
7: Claim jumper? Do you mean some foul citizen has moved onto your land?
1: Worse, into the cabin. He's taken it over. And you want him out, of course. Of course. We thought maybe you could advise us. No.
7: No. As government land agent, I am not allowed to advise in these matters.
1: Oh, I see. What you
7: need is a land attorney, a person familiar with the law. I guess not only familiar with it, but uh, conversant and persuasive.
1: May I ask, uh, are you allowed to recommend such a person?
7: Yes, indeed, indeed. Madam, your worries are over. The
1: land attorney, Mr. Quill, you were about...
7: Fortunately, sir, there is one in these parts, but only one. His name? Bartley Wilkinson Quill, attorney at law, Yale 54. Uh, Yes, of course, I should have known. All right, uh, what can you do? In time, good sir, in time. Mr. Todd, bring me my book covering claim jumpers. What?
8: I don't understand. There's there's no book written... Oh,
7: Todd! Pardon, sir, for the stupidity of my assistant. Stupidity is the problem these days. All phases of government. Well, now, I wouldn't... Uh... You found it, of course, Todd. Yes, sir. Uh,
1: is this it? Mr. Quill, I... Mrs. Danworthy hardly has the time for such legal work as you apparently intend to do.
7: But a matter of weeks, Kendall. Have him out in no time. Yes, that's, that's just it. What is?
1: She has less than a week in which to be living on her land. No, it has to be done quickly, now.
7: A widow, you say? Yes. Now, madam, there will doubtless be many legal affairs of another nature to be taken care of, wills, estate settlements, affairs in the East, Batans... Mr. Quill,
1: it is not necessary to hang your shingle on Mrs. Dunworthy's doorstep. Nor
7: should one hide under a bushel, my dear sir. Not a chance, Mr.
1: Quill. Sir... Thank you, Mr. Quill, you've been most uh, entertaining, but the lady needs more instantaneous help. Do
7: I detect a reflection of... Detect what of... you will. Good day. Uh, just a moment, sir. I perceive that this is a matter for the sheriff. You, your servant sir, I'll get up a posse, isn't that proper? A posse, Mr. Kendall, and we'll go hang the man. <laughs>
1: Not knowing how long Mr. Quill would take to organize his posse, I insisted Mrs. Danworthy engage a hotel room to rest. Then I went out and watched the tiny town appear come alive with excitement, as Mr. Quill spread the word that help was needed. By noon, 20 men with horses were lounging about the land office waiting for Mr. Quill, whom I knew to be inside with his books, looking up the proper procedure for handling a posse. I felt it was a good opportunity for me to tell the men my feelings in regard to the man in the cabin. Least of all, did I want him hanged.
4: Uh,
1: Gentlemen, gentlemen, your attention, please. Thank you. Uh, Gentlemen, as you may or may not know, I am Mr. Kendall. It was I who brought Mrs. Danworthy to town for help.
4: Oh, she,
7: we don't know nothing about this, just that the old man needed a posse. Oh,
1: oh, I see. Well, some of you may remember Mrs. Danworthy. She and her husband homesteaded 25 miles from here. They took a trip back east and her husband died. Now she's come back to find a claim jumper on her place.
7: We know how to take care of them. No,
1: no, no, please. That's exactly what we don't want. Now, I've talked to this man. He is dangerous in his present frame of mind. And I suggest that we proceed with caution, but I also insist that we do not kill the man. I've heard that you sometimes let claim jumpers swim across the river. Is that right?
4: Yeah,
9: funny thing, though. Ain't no record of one of them ever reaching other side, is it, boys? <laughs>
1: just just a moment. Uh, I'm not suggesting that either.
7: what do you want us to do with him? Kiss him and put him to bed? (laughs) (laughs) If you'll just...
1: Gentlemen, please. Please, gentlemen, if you'll just help me to catch him without harm. Now, what he's doing isn't fair to Mrs. Danworthy, and he must be removed, but killing him is not the answer.
7: Well, I don't know how you're going to get rid of him. Otherwise, there's no... yes. There you are, boys. Hi, hi, Well, everybody ready? Yes, sir. Uh, Yeah. I've been reading up on it, boys. I found out one thing. Yeah, what's that, Quill? It's no good without a rope. Yeah! Yeah!
4: Yeah!
1: It was after the men had ridden out of town toward the homestead that I discovered Mrs. Danworthy had disappeared. She had not lain in her bed at the hotel, and no one had any idea where she might have gone. Her wagon and horse were missing, and I rode as fast as I could, but I was too late. The posse had arrived just ahead of me.
10: Quill, just a moment.
7: Mrs. Danworthy,
1: have you or any of your men seen her?
7: It doesn't make any difference, Kendall. Legally, the owner needn't be here.
1: Mr. Quill, will you stop harping on the legal aspects of a hanging? You can't do this thing. I won't let you. Maybe Mrs. Danworthy is giving up the land.
7: Well, we'll just move in on that jumper anyway, Kendall. (laughs) (laughs)
3: one of you men off my property right now now get
7: (laughs) (laughs) widow danworthy it's your friend mr quill the attorney
3: mr quill i'm asking you to leave
7: but what about the claim jumper we rode a long way for him
3: he's gone i came back here this morning and he was gone
4: you'll remember
7: me now won't you mrs danworthy Anytime time you have any legal problems, why I'll, I'll be... I'll
3: be obliged if you get off my property.
7: Yes, ma'am. All right. We're going. Yeah, come on. Come on. Come on.
3: Mr. Kendall. Yes? Would you come here, please? Yes. I'd like to thank you for trying to help me.
1: That's all right. There's something I want to know. Yes. Did you come back to kill him? Yes. But why? We'd have got rid of him for you.
3: Because I didn't want that kind of help. If it was to come to that, it was my fight.
1: And he was sick. He didn't deserve to be killed.
3: Mr. Kendall... I didn't tell you why my husband died. It was this land. A man never worked so hard. But it killed him. No, I just couldn't let a stranger have it, could I?
1: Where did you put his body?
3: I didn't kill him, Mr. Kendall. You? He's inside. He doesn't know it, but he's dying of fever. He told me it first came on him in the war.
1: Does he know you came back to kill him?
3: No. He was helpless when I... when I found him. He thinks I came back because you told me he was sick. No. He doesn't know.
1: I stayed there two days. Almira Danworthy nursed him to the end, and he died blessing her name.
2: Frontier Gentleman was produced and directed by Anthony Ellis. Tonight's script was written by Tom Hanley and stars John Daner as J.B. Kendall. Featured in the cast were Virginia Gregg, Eddie Firestone, Richard Perkins, and Charles Seal. Join us again next week for another report from The Frontier Gentleman. Bud Sewell speaking.
0: story about homesteads and land grabs. That was The Librarian from October 5th, 1958. Frontier Gentleman, in which J.B. Kendall went to the aid of Mrs. Danworthy, a.k.a. Virginia Gregg. A story for his newspaper back in London. And you got Vic Perrin in there as the self-important librarian, Mr. Quayle, For some reason, he was using the pseudonym Richard Perkins. That's the only time I've heard him do that. And Eddie Firestone was a convincing Confederate veteran on the way out. On the way in is Jack Benny, next, here on Skywave Audio Theater. During his 23 years on radio and 27 on TV, Jack Benny and his cast created characters so well that their audience knew them like their own friends and could almost anticipate their lines in response. Most of all, Jack Benny himself, of course, he created a vain, stingy persona that was different from the real man who was modest and generous. What does a radio star do when he has a cold? Well, in Jack Benny's case, the show must go on, and he pushed his voice to get through his annual inventory. Just the thing for Jack Benny. McGee had his closet and Jack Benny has his pantry. As you'll hear in this broadcast from October
11: 2nd, 1949. The Jack Benny Program, presented by Lucky Strike.
12: The Lucky Strike program starring Jack Benny with Mary Livingston, Phil Harris, Rochester, Dennis and yours truly, Don Wilson. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, around this time of year, Jack Benny goes through a rather peculiar annual routine. He takes inventory of all the commodities in his pantry. As we look in, Rochester and Jack are checking off the items.
10: Two cans of corned beef hash.
8: Two cans of corned
10: beef hash. Four bottles of olives.
8: Rochester, slow down. I can't write that fast.
10: (laughs) Mr. Benny, I can't understand why you take inventory every fall. You run this house just like a grocery store.
8: I do not. Uh Uh-oh, I broke the point of this pencil. Where's the pencil sharpener?
10: In the cash (laughs) register.
8: Oh, yes. Darn it, I hit the 60-cent key instead of no sale. Now my books won't balance. Well, let's get on with the inventory, Rochester.
10: Six cans of peas.
8: Six cans of peas. Five cans of corn. Five cans of corn.
10: 436 cans of pork and beans.
8: 430... Rochester, how come we got so many cans of pork and beans?
10: Don't you remember? Mr. Paley threw those in to clinch the deal.
4: (laughs)
8: Oh, yes, one for each station. continue, Rochester.
10: Two bottles of vanilla extract. Two bottles of vanilla extract. One bottle of Lydia Pinkham's.
8: (laughs) One bottle of Lydia Pinkham's.
10: Twelve slices of white bread.
8: Twelve slices of white bread.
10: Seven slices of whole wheat bread.
8: Seven slices of whole wheat bread.
10: Oh, say, boys.
8: What is it, Rochester?
10: When we come to the toothpicks, let's just estimate.
8: <laughs> okay for the plain ones, but the colored ones we'll pound. <laughs> now, let's finish this.
10: S- six bottles of ketchup. Six bottles of ketchup. Six bottles of chili sauce.
8: Six bottles of chili sauce.
10: Three cans of Strongheart.
8: Three cans of Strongheart.
10: Boss, why have we got that?
8: I borrowed it from the Coleman's.
10: Well, we haven't got a dog. Why'd you borrow it?
8: Well, they were out of butter, and I didn't want to leave (laughs) empty-handed. We'll use it someday. Continue.
10: One sack of Idaho potatoes.
8: One sack of Idaho potatoes. Rochester, answer the door. I'll finish the inventory. Yes,
10: sir.
13: Hello, Rochester.
10: Oh, hello, Miss Livingston. Welcome to Ralph's Supermarket.
13: <laughs> what?
10: Come right in. Oh, hello, Mary.
13: Hello, Jack. What are you doing up on that stool?
8: Oh, I'll be finishing a minute. I'm just putting some stuff back on the top shelf. Would you please have me those two jars of caviar?
13: Oh, fine. Fish eggs from a frightened mackerel, and he calls it caviar. <laughs> Mary,
8: I've got a cold. Why do you have to come over here and...
4: The stool,
8: the cats Oh. Uh,
13: Jack, are you hurt?
8: No, no, I'm all right
13: <laughs>
8: What are you laughing at?
13: With those fish eggs in your ear, you look like you're going upstreet to spawn
4: <laughs> <laughs>
8: Upstreet to spawn, upstreet to spawn the man nearly kills himself, and you talk about romance.
4: <laughs>
8: now, Mary, look at it. I got a cold. Will you not bother me? Answer that, will you, please?
13: Okay. Hello, Mr. Benny's residence.
11: Hey, Livy. Hey, how come you're answering the phone? New clause in your contract?
13: <laughs> no, Phil. Jack would have answered it, but he can't.
11: He's lying on the floor. Holy smoke, he's getting as bad as Ramley.
13: It isn't that at all. Would you like to speak to Jack?
11: Talk to that old man when I got you, Livy.
4: <laughs> uh,
14: why, you gorgeous bundle of loveliness. <laughs> You beautiful, streamlined doll,
11: you gorgeous hunk of... Let me speak to Jackson.
13: Uh, Phil, what happened?
11: Alice just walked into the room.
13: Oh. Say, Phil, I'd like to talk to
11: Alice. Put her on the phone. If I do, it'll count as a guest spot.
13: (laughs) Well, wait a minute. I'll put Jack on. Jack, Phil wants to talk to you. Okay.
11: Okay.
8: Hello, Phil. Well, how's Paley's comic today?
4: <laughs>
11: I'm all right. What do you want, Phil? Look, Jackson, I know it's kind of late notice, but I wonder if you could give me a couple of tickets for today's broadcast. Well, I
8: might be able to scrape up, two. Who are they for?
11: Well, my nephew who
8: lives in Kentucky
11: just got married, and he and his wife are
8: visiting us. He's a swell kid. Nineteen years old. Nineteen and married? How old is his wife? Ten. <laughs> Wait a minute, Phil You mean to say your nephew married a 10-year-old girl? He felt sorry for her, her first husband was a
4: louse. <laughs> Phil,
8: stop making things up Now, who do you want the tickets for? Well, to tell you the truth, it's for Remley But he was afraid to ask you. <laughs> Well, he should be ashamed After what happened last time He gave that ticket to his girl She almost started a riot in the studio Imagine her walking up and down the aisle doing a thing like that. That wasn't her fault, Jackson. The band never should have played a pretty girl is like a melody. (laughs)
4: All
8: right, but where did she get
7: the balloons? Where did she get the balloons? Where did you get the pin?
4: Oh, (laughs) what?
8: All right, Phil, I'll give you the tickets uh, at rehearsal. Thanks, Jackson. Goodbye. Goodbye.
15: Hey, uh, Jackson.
8: What?
7: You're old, but you're cute. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I'm
8: cute. Goodbye. (laughs) Phil always has to call me when I'm busy. Oh, Rochester. What is it, boy? I knocked over all these cans when I fell off the stool. Will you pick them up while I go on with the inventory? Yes, sir. Mary, will you please help me? I'll call off the items and you write them down. Oh, sure, Jack. Five bottles of vinegar.
13: Five bottles of vinegar.
8: Three boxes of rye crisp uh, three boxes
13: of rye crisp
8: Eleven cans of Johnson's wax <laughs>
13: Eleven cans of Johnson's... Jack, why do you need all that wax?
8: It's for the program, Mary You put it on your head and the jokes slip your mind
4: <laughs> <laughs>
13: All right, Jack I made a mistake last week You deducted it from my salary Now let's forget it uh, <laughs>
8: All right, now let's keep going, Mary One leg of lamb
13: One leg of lamb
8: Two packages of bacon Two
13: packages of bacon
8: One side of
12: beef Jack, that's me Oh,
13: oh, (laughs) oh, oh, hello, Don
12: Hello, Jack, Mary Hello, Don Say, Jack, I know you're busy, but I brought the sportsman quartet with me And they want to run over the commercial for the program
8: But, Don, I didn't think they could be with us this Sunday I thought they were being held over at the Orpheum
12: Theater Oh, they are, that's why they had to rush over here between shows to let you hear the song Oh. This is their second week at the theater, Jack, and they're a terrific hit there. Well, isn't that wonderful? So
8: you're back at Vaudeville, eh, boys? Hmm. That's nice. Uh, Tell me, fellas, how does it feel being on the stage again? Do you like it?
9: There's no business like show, business like no business we know. Playing at the Orpheum is thrilling, standing out in front on opening night smiling as you watch the theater filling and there's your billing up there in lights. There's no people like show people, they smile when they are low. Thank you, Jack, for booking us, "'twas heaven sent. Yes, thanks to you, we can pay our rent. That's all right. But don't worry, Jack, you'll get your 10%. Thank Let's you. go on with the What about show? the commercial, fellas? Commercial. no cigarette, none you can get like luckies we know. Luckies are a smoke that you will treasure. Luckies have a taste that you will like. There's no way we know to really measure the smoking pleasure in lucky's Strike. So buy luckies and try luckies. You'll like luckies. We know at the auctions, lucky strike pays millions more for fine tobacco. That's what it's for. Buy a pack of L S M F T before you go on to the show. Let's go right on with the show.
12: Don, that was simply wonderful. I'm glad you liked it, Jack. Now we've got to rush back to the theater. The boys will be on stage in 20 minutes. Then you better hurry. Goodbye, fellas. So long, Don. So long. Gee, Mary, just the
8: mention of Vaudeville brings back memories. I wish I was back on the stage again. Ah, those were the days.
13: Did you ever play the Orpheum here, Jack?
8: Yes, Mary. I even remember the bill. There was Block and Sully, Willie Weston McGiddy, the Avon Comedy Four, Fink's Mules, and Fred Allen. (laughs) Ah oh, gee, he was a clever guy. Alan. No fig.
4: <laughs> now
8: what did I do with my pencil? I want to finish this. I'll get
16: it. Hello, hello, Mr. Benny. This is Mel Blank. Oh, hey, uh... can you use me on your program Sunday? No, I can't, and Mel, why do you keep bothering me? I told you I can't use your imitations on my program. But I don't just imitate actors. I imitate world-famous politicians like Winston Churchill, Anthony Eden, Uh, General (laughs) de Gaulle, and that fellow who just visited President Truman. Who's that? Al Jolson. (laughs) Now, cut
4: that out!
8: And I can't use you on my show, Sunday. Goodbye. I can't understand that guy. He knows if I had a job, I'd give it to him. I'm his agent. (laughs)
10: Oh, Mary.
13: Uh, just a minute, Jack. Go ahead, Rochester.
10: Twelve cans of crushed pineapple.
13: Uh, Twelve cans of crushed pineapple.
10: Nineteen cans of condensed milk.
13: Nineteen cans of condensed milk.
10: Two thousand four hundred and fifty-six
13: cans. <laughs> cans? Cans of what?
10: Just cans, Mr. Benny. Don't throw nothing away.
8: <laughs> Certainly. Not. I paid them and hang them on my Christmas tree. Now, Barry, I can finish this up with Rochester, so...
10: Shall I answer the door, boys?
8: No, don't bother getting down from the stool. I'll answer it. I'd like to get this inventory finished before we... Well!
10: Hello,
16: Mr.
4: Benny. (laughs) Mr. Kitzel! (laughs)
8: Mr. Kitzel, it's certainly nice seeing you again. What are you doing around this neighborhood?
16: Mr. Benny, I came over to say goodbye. I'm going to New York to see the World Series. Well,
8: that's wonderful, Mr. Kitzel. I didn't know you were interested in baseball.
16: Interesting. You know, Mr. Bennett, when I was a boy, I played baseball all the time. Really? Yes, indeed. I used to pitch for my high school team.
8: No kidding. Well, were you a good pitcher? (laughs) Hoo hoo
16: hoo! They used to call me Satchel Kitzel. No. Yes. <laughs> oh, I could pitch fast, slow, inside, outside, but my specialty was, you should excuse the expression, a saliva ball. <laughs> Hey, you must have been pretty good Pretty
4: good
16: After I left high school, I became a professional And played ball with the Mexican league And then after nine years, I was... Wait a minute,
8: wait a minute You were down in Mexico for nine years?
16: Where do you think I got this accent?
8: No, 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 you're joking, aren't
4: you? <laughs> oh, no, 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 no.
8: But that's Mr. Kissel I'm certainly surprised to hear about your interest in baseball.
16: <laughs> oh, that's so surprising. In nineteen thirty-eight I was the most popular man at the World Series. Oh my, you should have heard the crowd yelling for me. You mean you played in the World Series? Who played? I was selling hot dogs, pickle in the middle, and the mustard on top with a hey, Bobbery, and a little bebop Goodbye, Goodbye, so long.
8: Gee, it was nice seeing Mr. Kitzel again.
13: Jack, we're almost finished with the inventory.
8: That's good. Say, Mary, I certainly appreciate your helping me, and I'll tell you what, if you'd like to stay for dinner, I'll take you out later. We'll go to a nightclub.
13: A nightclub? Oh, I'd love to, Jack, but I already have a day. Oh. I hope it doesn't spoil your evening.
8: No, no, no. I'll take my pen, to... <laughs> <laughs> Now, Mary, if you want to, oh, there's the door again. Come in. Well, Mr.
17: Benny, I just came over to ask you if you—Hello, oh, would... Dennis. Hello, Mr. Benny, I just came over to ask you if you—How would... do you feel, kid? It's fine. Mr. Benny, I just came over to now, ask now if you now close the would...
8: door, will you, Dennis? Okay. Now, Dennis, what did you—Dennis?
17: How do you like that? He locked himself out.
4: <laughs>
17: oh well, it just—Come a... in. Well, Mr. Benny, I just came over to ask you if it'd be all right if I could... Dennis, when I told
8: you to close the door, I bet you should come in first. Oh. Now, what'd you want to ask me?
17: If I could use your phone, my house is on fire.
4: Now,
8: Dennis, don't be silly. If your house is on fire, why would you come all the way to Beverly Hills to use the phone?
17: I want the fireman to think I'm a big shot. Dennis,
8: close the door, will you? Just my luck. This time, he stayed on the inside. <laughs> now, look, at I'm busy, so don't bother me with all those silly things you make up. Come on, Barry, let's finish this inventory.
17: Okay. Oh, is that what you're doing?
8: Yes, yes. I right. thought
17: you were cleaning house like my mother did the other day. I'm not cleaning house. Boy, no. did she get rid of a lot of stuff. She threw some old curtains out of the living room, a broken rocking chair out of the bedroom, and she even took the moose head out of the shower.
8: <laughs> now, Barry, let's... Dennis. She took the what... Out of the shower? The moose head. Yeah. You're going to ignore that, eh, Mary?
13: <laughs>
17: I certainly am. Hmm. My father put it in there, Wait a but my minute, mother Dennis. did Wait a minute,
8: hold it a minute. I know I'll regret asking you this, <laughs> but why would your father put a moose head in a shower?
17: The other end would look silly. <laughs>
8: Well, that I can understand. Now,
4: Dennis... (laughs) Dennis,
8: besides your house being on fire and your father being in a shower with a moose, what else is new?
17: Well, I've been rehearsing my song all week. Would you like to hear it? I'd love to. Anything. Go ahead. Okay.
8: Okay. That was very good I just sit down For a few minutes I want to finish My inventory
10: We've got everything Listed boss All we have to do Is put the last few Things back on the shelves Good good
13: Rochester I'll get up on the stool And you can hand The stuff to me
8: No no Mary I'll get up there
13: Oh Jack You've had enough trouble I'll get up on the stool Help me
8: Okay Up Up Don't let your skirt Catch out of the stool <laughs>
13: I'll lift it a little Dennis
8: <laughs> Dennis You ought to be ashamed of yourself
17: Oh, I wasn't whistling at Mary
8: Now, Dennis, don't deny it You were looking at Mary's limbs And you were whistling at her, now, weren't you?
17: Well, yes
13: Good, good
8: Mary! You get down off the stool and I'll get up there I gotta get this job finished Help me up, Rochester
10: Here you are, boys. Up, up Dennis!
8: (laughs) Now, stop it That was me Good, good.
4: <laughs>
8: now, Rochester, if I push these cans on the top of the shelf back a little, I think we can squeeze in a couple of more. Jack! Jack, the stool! Look out!
4: Ooh.
8: Ooh. It's my own fault.
18: Jack
13: juice is falling. Look out!
4: <laughs> oh,
13: Jack. 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 Oh, my goodness, he's unconscious. Jack!
10: Boss! Boss, speak to me! Speak to me!
13: Gee, he's really out cold. Rochester, help me. Put a pillow under his head. Dennis, go get a glass of water. I'd rather have a Coke. Go get it Jack Jack Gee, Rochester Look at that big bump on his head
10: Yeah, hope he isn't hurt too bad Uh,
13: Here's the water, Mary Well, don't stand there Throw it In his face, not
4: mine
10: (laughs) He's coming too, Miss Livingston
8: Where am I? Uh, what what happened?
13: Well, after you fell, a big can of tomato juice hit you on the head. Oh. oh. Uh, are you all right, Jack?
8: Yes. Yes, I feel all right, Mary. It's, you know, it's just that... Oh, Mary, you were worried about me, weren't you? You've been crying.
13: Dennis threw water in my face.
8: <laughs> uh, Rochester, help me up, will you, please?
10: Uh, here you are, boss. Uh,
13: Jack, uh, you better sit down. You were hit pretty hard. You got a big bump on your head.
8: But, Mary, I feel perfectly off.
13: There's somebody at the door. I'll get it. Jack, let rock Mary,
8: don't worry. Little hit on the head, they make such a big thing out of it.
7: Telegram for Jack Benny. I'm Jack Benny. Here you are, sir.
8: Thank you. Oh, just a minute, boy. Uh, Here's a tip for you.
16: Gee, uh, I'm sorry, sir, but I haven't got change for a dollar bill. I don't want any change. Keep it. It's yours. Oh, boy,
7: a dollar tip. Thank you. Jack. Gee, I
8: wonder who could be sending me a telegram. Uh, Jack. Well, there's only one way to find out. Jack. What is it, Mary?
13: You just gave that Western Union boy a dollar tip.
8: Yes, was that enough? <laughs> <laughs> if, you, if you don't think so, I'll call him back. Uh, and...
13: uh, no, no, Jack. No, no, no.
8: Mary, what's the matter with you?
13: Uh, Jack, are you sure you feel all right?
8: I'm fine, fine. What's the matter with you, kid? Look, and excuse me, kids, while I read my
17: telegram. Please.
13: Dennis, did you see what happened? Yeah,
17: maybe it's that bump
13: on his head. He's never given a Western Union boy a dollar before, has he, Rochester?
10: Only once in that time he kept the kid's bicycle.
13: <laughs> well, hey,
8: kids, I'm certainly glad I got this wire. Uh
13: who's it from, Jack? The
8: boys at Phil's band. They're giving Sammy the drummer a surprise birthday party tonight, and they want me to be there. Excuse me a minute. I, I want to make a telephone call. Da 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 da. Hello? Uh, Beverly Hills Liquor Store? Uh, This is Jack Benny talking. That's right. Listen, I'd like to order a little gift for a birthday party. Do you have some very fine imported champagnes? What? I said Benny, Jack Benny. (laughs) No, no, not one bottle of champagne. I want to order a whole case. Huh? Yes, Benny,
9: B-E-N-N-Y.
8: Yes. Now, send this case of champagne to Sam Weiss, 4720, Mary Ellen Avenue, Van Nuys. No, no, don't send the bill to him. Send it to me. Yes,
19: B-E-N-N-Y.
8: Thank you. Goodbye.
13: Uh, Rochester, Rochester, this is serious.
8: Well, kids, I'm going upstairs and get dressed for the party. See you tomorrow, Mary. So long, Dennis.
13: Bye, Mr. Benny.
8: Ha, this ought to be a lot of fun tonight. I wonder what suit I should wear. I think I'll wear the brown one. (laughs) Da (laughs) da-da-da-da.
12: Ladies and gentlemen, the National Foundation for Infantile Paralysis is in immediate need of help. The March of Dimes Funds have been exhausted fighting this year's epidemic of polio. $14.5 million must be raised within the next seven days. So won't you please help to fight this dread disease? Please send your dimes and dollars to polio, care of your local post office. We cannot abandon America's children. Remember, send your dimes and dollars to polio in care of your local post office. Thank you. (laughs)
13: Uh, yes, Doctor, Mr. Benny is acting very strangely. Well, Doctor, first he gave a Western Union boy a dollar tip, and then he ordered a case of champagne as a birthday gift for a... What? Yes, Benny. B-E-N-N-Y.
12: Be sure to hear Dennis Day in The Day in the Life of Dennis Day. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting
4: Center.
0: For the 1949 season opener, Jack Benny got in the whole cast, if even for little cameos in some cases. you got Phil Harris, Dennis Day, and Mel Blanc. And, of course, Rochester is played by Eddie Anderson, always uh, getting the better of Jack Benny, as does Jack's real-life wife, Mary Livingston. And you've got in a commercial which was so integrated into the show that, well, we'll let it go despite the product. Jack Benny was one of those radio stars who made a smooth and very successful transition to television. Next up, it's information, please, and this is Skywave Audio Theater. Robert St. John attended Oak Park River Forest High School in Oak Park, Illinois, and according to a Los Angeles Times interview he gave in 1994, St. John and a classmate in a writing class were kept after class one day, And the teacher told them, neither one of you will ever learn to write. Well, Robert St. John did go on to become a successful writer and journalist, and so did his classmate, a guy named Ernest Hemingway. St. John shares the questions with composer Deems Taylor in this broadcast of Information Please from October 2, 1942.
20: It's half
21: past eight. It's half past eight, New York time. Time to wake up America and stump the experts. Each week at this time, Lucky Strike runs a coast-to-coast quiz party with four bulging brains as the floor show. You provide the questions and our experts try to answer them. Remember, for every question used, Lucky Strike will give you not only $10 in war stamps but a set of the 12-volume Britannica Junior Encyclopedia. If the question is muffed, you get the Junior Britannica plus a $50 war bond plus a 24-volume set of the regular Encyclopedia Britannica. Send your questions to information, please, 480 Lexington Avenue, New York City. If our editorial staff edits your questions a bit, don't fret over it. In case of similarity, we'll have to be sole judge of who shall be paid. And all questions become the property of Information, Please. And now light up a lucky strike as I present our Master of Ceremonies book reviewer of the New Yorker magazine, Clifton Fadiman. Mr. Fadiman. Thank you, Mr. (laughs) Clark. Ladies and gentlemen, spontaneous and completely go as you please, Information,
7: Please, tonight offers those practically Siamese twins, Franklin P. Adams and John Kieran, and the music critic and radio commentator, Deems Taylor, and as our fourth guest, we give you the distinguished NBC London commentator, author of the bestseller, From the Land of Silent People, Mr. Robert St. John, who's just back from London on leave. Now, Mr. St. John had one date and one date only to give us, and we took advantage of it. This was made possible by the following telegram that we received from Gregory Rathoff, who was originally announced for tonight. This telegram was addressed to The producer of information, please, Mr. Dan Golan, Paul. And it reads as follows. My heart is broken into a thousand pieces that I cannot keep my date on your sensational program tonight. I am not finished with my new picture. My new picture is something to shout about. That is its name. But I will positively be with you next week, rain or shine. Please believe me, I couldn't avoid it. Every word is the truth. Best regards, Gregory (laughs) Rattoff. Now, although we regret that Mr. uh, (laughs) Ratoff, we regret that he can't be with us tonight, but we are also glad that his appearance won't be long postponed, and we are very happy to have the privilege offered us of having Mr. St. John on in his stead this evening. We're going to begin with a question from Julia Mullen of New York City. How did each of these people of fact or fiction rise to a particular emergency? And the first person is Bessie. Of course, you have to know who Bessie is, Mr. Kieran. Well, it was Bessie who was the heroine in Kirk, who shall not ring tonight. That's right. She She rose by clinging to the clapper of the bell. (laughs) Uh, That's quite right. And what did she do by so clinging? Saved Basil Underwood, who was doomed to die at dawn. That's right. Very good. I wonder how many of us remembered all those details. Mr. Adams, did you? I remember that, and
21: I also remember that it was written by Rose Hartwick Thorpe.
7: You do. And what else do you remember, Mr. Kieran? (laughs) (laughs)
21: <laughs> <laughs> That's enough.
7: <laughs> That's enough. All right. What, uh, how did General Simovic rise to an emergency? Mr. St. John. By staging a coup d'etat or pooch in uh, Yugoslavia on the, in the last week of March of last year, leading indirectly to the uh, war in the Balkans. Yes. Uh, he gave the spark to the resistance, which is still continuing, wouldn't you say? Right. And what is, Simovich, what is Simovich doing now? Mr. He was uh, Prime Minister of the uh, refugee government in London. He has since been replaced by Yovanovitch, and Simovich is now in sort of retirement somewhere in England. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the time that Simovic uh, started this d'état in Yugoslavia, was the present General Mihalovic uh, very much in evidence? Well, oh, he now was almost an unknown. He was an insignificant man in the Army. But apparently he's uh, quite a guy. He from a had the here. stuff and it still has got it. You bet. <laughs> All right, how about Johnny Stout? How did Johnny Stout rise to the emergency? You ever hear of Johnny Stout, Mr. Adams? Never. Never heard of him? <laughs> Your acquaintance is limited. Mr. Taylor, have you ever heard of him? Mr. Uh, Kieran. No, Who pull people? him out, little Johnny Stout? Why, sir. <laughs> <laughs> oh, her Kierin. out. Pussy's in the well, isn't that it? Yeah. Something's in the yeah. well. Mr. Kieran, Mr. Adams still hasn't heard of. He doesn't He doesn't have any idea what this is all about. That isn't the way I heard it. I don't suppose you even know little Johnny Green, Mr. Adams.
21: He threw He her put Eve. him in.
7: Oh, you do? <laughs> all right. Now don't be a snob next time. Uh, Grover Cleveland Alexander rose to what emergency and how? Mr. Kieran? In the seventh inning of the final game of the 1926 World Series, played on a rainy Sunday at the Yankee Stadium, he (laughs) he struck out Tony Lazzeri on a low outside ball and thus saved the series for the Cardinals. Uh, Very good. (laughs) Your head is full of that sort of thing, Mr. Kieran. Can't there? get it out. Can't get it out. Did Kieran answer that question or write it? <laughs> <laughs> he sounded as if he was reading, didn't he, Mr. Uh, Taylor? Yeah. Well, that's... A wonderful man. He's yeah. not, though. I still admire him after all these years. In doing about... stuff like that. Oh, you know? that's terrific. How about this one, gentlemen, from Barbara Redfield of West Los Angeles, California? What nation raised an open city, that's R-A-Z-E-D, raised an open city by air after it had surrendered? Mr. Taylor. Uh, Germany. Uh, raised what city? Uh, Rotterdam. Rotterdam is right. And uh, what was the date, remember? The date? The date. Uh, the month and year. Why don't you speak to Mr. Kieran? <laughs> <laughs> well, this isn't far back enough for him. Oh, well, it was 1939. Uh, thir- no, it was 40, I think. Uh, well, May, 40. May 1940, yes. After Rotterdam had surrendered, Germany gave evidence about. Well, the, the kind war began in 1939, didn't That's right. I remember that distinctly. Yes. Uh <laughs> Mr. St. John, do we know anything at all about the present condition of Rotterdam uh, since the half destruction of it? Uh, very little information gets to London from that particular part of Europe. yeah, a great deal gets there from other parts like the Balkans, yeah in fact, uh, we can tell you in London uh, within uh, about twenty four hours what the price of uh, beef cattle is in Zagreb, croatia: That's the a useful thing to know uh, oh uh, yeah. yes. Okay, what is
4: it? <laughs> <laughs> you would ask. Today or yesterday? Today, on the hoop. <laughs>
7: <laughs> He's a tough baby, uh, Mr. <laughs> uh, Why did you put? <laughs> How about this?
4: One?
7: What nation? What nation bombarded an undefended island after a 24-hour ultimatum? Mr. Adams. Japan. No, uh, I don't think. Uh, that well, it's an awful true. good guess. Well, it's uh, <laughs> it's the sort of thing she would do. Now it was Italy who bombed the island of Corfu in 1923, after a general and some other people had been killed in Greece. The ultimatum had some impossible terms. Greece turned it down, and the undefended island was bombarded, and Italy at that time gave evidence of the sort of nation that she wanted to become. That was way back in 1923. What nation shelled a defenseless city in Spain, claiming an attack on one of its warships as an excuse? This was a very famous episode. Uh, very early in the present war, during one of its earlier phases. It was Germany who claimed that the Loyalists in Spain had bombed the Deutschland, and as a reprisal, four warships fired on Almeria, wiping the whole town out. This was way back in May 1937. It's a good thing for us to remember that these atrocities began before what we call the opening of the present war, that the Spanish War was merely the first of the great battles of this war. Wouldn't you say that, St. John? Uh, That, uh, however, gives us two wrong, not a three, and sends a $50 war bond to Miss Redfield (laughs) and a set of the Encyclopedia Britannica and passes us on to a question from Miss Anna L. Laforge of Morris County, New Jersey. Now, gentlemen, if you are suggesting the following people as guest experts for information, please, what quotations would you give to prove their qualifications? For example, or rather, here's the first one. Suppose we... uh, You were suggesting the village schoolmaster in the deserted village as an information, please, guest. Mr. Kieran. And still they gazed, and still the wonder grew that one small head could carry all he knew. That's perfectly right. Oliver Goldsmith. Oliver Goldsmith, and that is a perfect quotation. That's just as true of Mr. Kieran as it is of the village schoolmaster. (laughs) How about uh, Sally in Our Alley? I suppose you were suggesting her as a uh, guest of information, please. Not a bad idea. Mr. Adams. There's none so sweet as Sally. That wouldn't be a good reason for having her on the program. I think you know it would. we've <laughs> had we've had those. <laughs> uh, Mr. Taylor. Well, I was curious. All I can tell. Of all the girls that are so smart. Ah, you're, now you're cooking with gas. Thank you, Mr. Adams. Yeah. Of all the girls that are so smart, there's none like pretty Sally. 100% for you, Mr. Adams. Uh, who wrote the poem? Henry Carey. That's
21: somebody that uh, didn't write much else. Henry yes, Carey. Yes,
7: he wrote, uh, I think he wrote uh, *Rule Britannia. I'm not sure about that. If he did, he I certainly wrote I think he did. He certainly we wrote a mouthful. wrote Britannica or Either that or uh, <laughs> God Save the King. One of no, the, uh, the great uh, songs of England he wrote. A famous song. How about, how about this one? Suppose we wanted to have Major General Stanley from the Pirates of Penzance on this program. How would you recommend him? In what quotation? Mr. Adams?
21: I would recommend him uh, for almost omniscience.
7: And uh, how would you prove it by a quotation?
21: He's the very pattern of a modern major general. Yes, that's
7: right. Uh, What sort of information did he have? Animal, vegetable, and mineral. Animal, vegetable, and mineral, yes. know the kings of England? I quote the fights historical and so forth. That gives us three out of three. Now, Mrs. Arthur Hayes Sulzberger of White Plains, New York, sends this one in. What part of the anatomy is associated with each of these characters? And the first character is Elisha, E-L-I-S-H-A. Mr. Adams? What character? What part of the anatomy is associated with him, Mr. Cairn? A uh, bald head. That's right. Who was Elijah? Like? Elijah was in the uh, Old Testament, yes, and the right. children mocked him. Yes. And he called on a, called a pretty bitter vengeance on him, I thought. What did he do? He had the bears come out after him. Yes, yeah, that's right. Bears appeared from the woods and devoured the children. Very bloody tale. Yes, it's his bald head that caused all the trouble. Now, how about Benedict Arnold? What part of the, uh, the anatomy do you think of when you think of Benedict Arnold? Mr. Kieran. Benedict Arnold. uh, Well, you mean physically? He uh, he was shot. He he was crippled. Uh, What part of his? Well, I'm trying to think whether it was a leg or an arm. Well, pick one part. Pick uh, one, one of them. Pick a limb. His brain. (laughs) I think probably it was an arm. Oh well, it was a leg. Well, I'm.
4: (laughs) (laughs) I'm half right.
7: (laughs) Yes, he was wounded in the leg during the Battle of Saratoga. And at that time, he became a great national hero. That's right. It wasn't until sometime later that he began making his mistakes. I think we ought to call you wrong or right. Wrong, no, uh, I call me wrong. Call oh, you wrong, all right. You're wrong. Uh. <laughs> Lord George Hell. That was his name. Hell. Hell. Please.
21: Well, well that's what it says here. We're that's on the
7: air. That was his name, Lord George Hell, H-E-L-L. Mr. Taylor. I should say the face. Who was Lord George Hell? Uh, he was a uh, the hero of a story by Max Birbel. That's right. What was uh, the story called? Who, uh, who was the uh, incarnation of evil, yeah. more or less. Yeah. And uh, to win the girl, he had a mask That's made right. that expressed the great uh, beauty and sweetness and mm-hmm. so forth. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, by an odd uh, coincidence, he lived up to the mask. That's right. And finally, in a spirit of noble self-sacrifice, he resolved to take it off and show the girl that he'd been fooling her. He took it off, and lo and behold, it was this—he s- had the same face as the man. That's very well told. Very well lie. That's exactly right. Yes, that's uh, the famous story of a happy hypocrite by Max Beerbohm. And no dough for Mrs. S? Uh, no dough for Mrs. Seldsberg. I'm awfully <laughs> sorry.
4: <laughs>
7: You've been worrying about Mrs. Seldsberger all this time, while Mr. Taylor was telling us that nice story. How about this one from Mrs. Julia A. Ames of Berlin, New Hampshire? Can you identify the president whose birthplace is suggested by each of these songs that you're now going to hear? There are going to be three of them. Let's get two out of three. Let's have the first. Now, be careful. This is kind of a sticker. Uh, the president whose birthplace is suggested by that song. Mr. Kieran. I'd say uh, President Roosevelt. Which one? Theodore. Ah, that's right, yes. Theodore Roosevelt, born in New York City. Uh, where was Franklin D. Roosevelt born? Well, I guess up the state, wasn't he? I think he was, yes, up the river a bit. Uh, how about how about the next one? <laughs> Mr. St. John. Uh, Warren G. Harding. Warren G. Harding. What was being played? St. Uh, John? Beautiful Ohio. Beautiful Ohio. Yes, what part of the country do you come from yourself? Do I come mm, from yeah. Chicago? What you come no from? kidding. Good. <laughs> couple of buddies. Well, yes. almost, uh, Harding. almost any president is born in Ohio. Unless he's you? born in Virginia, Mr. Taylor. Yeah. Be careful. Well, Taft was born in Ohio. Well, name another, Mr. Taylor. William McKinley. Ruthbert B. Right. Hayes. Ruthbert B. Hayes? I don't think he was born in Ohio. James A. Garfield. Though, uh, I don't think so, no. Grant was. Harrison was. Uh, McKinley, Harding. Now, how about the third and last, Mr. Codd? Of course, you have to know what's being have played. You know what that is? Yeah, you know, that's
4: the trouble. <laughs> it's that's kind of
7: reminiscent, of Mr. Adams, isn't it? Hmm. Isn't it kind of reminiscent? Not a bit. No, never heard of it. Never heard of it before. Has cotton wool in his ears practically all his life, Mr. Taylor. I've heard it thousands of times, and I haven't the remotest idea. It's called it. the Jersey bounce. <laughs> oh, Jersey oh, bound. Now, what president? Thomas Woodrow Wilson. No, he wasn't born. He was born in Virginia. That's right. Uh, Mr. Kieran? No, I was going to go wrong on on Wilson. No, the only one that I know of that was born in New Jersey was born in Caldwell, New Jersey, a very nice, uh, flourishing suburb. Grover Cleveland was born oh, in Oh, well, in he grew up, up in
4: Buffalo. Well, that's, that's, that's right. <laughs> he did. That, that gives us was. two
7: out of three. And now a question from C.L. Layton of Chicago. What's the present name of the city once known as the following? Let's get two out of three on this. Once known as Christiania. What's its present name? Mr. Taylor? Oslo. Oslo. In what uh, country is that? Uh, Norway. In Norway, yes. Principal city of Norway, isn't it? Wouldn't that be right, Mr. St. John? I think right. so. Now, the present name of the city once known as Saritsin. Saritsin. I may be mispronouncing it. It's T-S-A-R-I-T-S-I-N. Well, I'm sorry, gentlemen, Something this is the name of Star. one of the most famous and one of the greatest cities in the world. Petrograd. Stalingrad. Well,
4: Stalin.
7: Yes, once hey, known as Stalingrad. That gives us one wrong. Let's remember its present name, gentlemen, even if we can't remember its form. And now, what's the present name of the city or township once known as Stern Park Gardens? Mr.
21: Adams? Lidice. And what is Lidice? It was a uh, village that was... Uh... Utterly destroyed by the Germans. Yes. Uh,
22: on, uh, I think, June 10th.
7: That's right, June 10th. And uh,
8: all the men were put to death.
7: Yes, and the, remember Hitler boasted that the village would be destroyed and forgotten. And one of the first things that happened was a little town in Illinois renamed itself immediately, say Another town in Mexico has done so, and I would bet that before this war is over, there will be 29 Liditzays of the 29 United Nations arising to compute Mr. Hitler's boast that the little village's name will be forgotten. Here's a question from Mrs. M. Bernstein of Cincinnati, Ohio. Oh, it's an opera question. You'll love this, Mr. Taylor.
4: I bet I will. (laughs) Yeah.
7: This is all about who kills whom in uh, certain operas. I said the sparrow. (laughs) (laughs) Doesn't cover all eventualities. In what opera, gentlemen, does the tenor, Kill the soprano.
4: Oh thousand.
7: <laughs> <laughs> now that's just wishful thinking, Mr. Adams. Mr. Taylor. Well, for one, in Verdi's Otello. In Verdi's Otello? Mm mm-hmm. Otello kills Desdemona. Yep. And he's a tenor. He certainly is. And Desdemona's a soprano. Yeah, up to, yeah, to, to right. That's right, that's right. Who and Iago is the baritone in that. Yeah. One. You think Othello will have a very deep voice somehow, but that isn't the know, way it works. But uh, this is opera. <laughs> uh, isn't there an even more famous opera, uh, Ippagliacci, in which uh, the tenor kills uh, How does he kill her? her uh, he kills another. Yeah, how does he do it? I like to think about these things. Oh, well, he stabbed her. He stabbed, he her, stabbed so he her. yeah. Heard. Sure, well, you might as well enjoy it while you have a chance.
4: <laughs> <but>
7: <laughs> and what opera does the tenor kill the baritone? Tenor kill the baritone. Tenor kill the baritone. This, this baritone. gets kind of tough, I guess. Tenor kill the baritone. Is that the last act? You mean you never got far? I that wouldn't before. know that. <laughs> <laughs> it is in the last act. Uh, the well, it's in uh, Lohengrin. Telramund is killed by Lohengrin. Remember that now? Oh, steady, old man. All right, what's wrong with mm. me now? No, I don't think so. No? Uh-huh. Doesn't Lohengrin, doesn't Lohengrin is that, kill Telramund? Uh, no. What did he do with him? Well, he sailed away on a duck. But, uh... <laughs> now, I am uh, no Wagner expert as I think I can prove without much difficulty. And you may be right. Well, you're frightening me, frightening me into thinking that I'm not. My famous. information is that Tellramund is killed by Green. Also, doesn't Faust kill Valentine in the, in the opera? Yes. And isn't Faust a tenor? And isn't Valentine a baritone still? Yes, uh, all the baritones begin by singing Valentine. Begin by singing Valentine. Well, at least we got uh, one of those wrong. Now, how about an opera in which the baritone, this, this part I like, in which the baritone kills the tenor? <laughs> Baritone kills the tenor. <laughs> Doesn't he then commit suicide? <laughs> I don't think so, no. I can give you one in which the soprano kills the baritone. Well, that's sweet of you, Mr. They Taylor. Kill him on the stage? Yes. Yes, I think so. The baritone kills him? Yes. Tosca? No, Tosca's no, no baritone. No, but uh, but Scarpia, wasn't Scarpia baritone? Yeah.
0: Wasn't the, the tenor, tenor
7: killed in that play? Well he had him shot. Oh, it isn't the same thing as a real murder. I claim a foul. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's in Cavalleria Rusticana, isn't it? Uh, Alfio that, kills. Well, Torito? that's only hearsay because somebody just comes in and says. says he's uh, done done uh, so. has uh, killed Nebratoredo. You, you may or may not believe him. Now, uh, in in Tristan, is is isn't Tristan killed by somebody called Melot? Yes. That's Who's I if that's on stage tonight. Sixty dollar a week yeah. uh, baritone. Well, well that that ain't that's something. That's something. Well, we got two wrong on that. That sends a $50 war bond to Mrs. Bernstein and a set of the Britannic. How about this one? Uh, From Foster Victor of Franklin, New Jersey. Uh, What time of day is it and what's going on in each of these compositions? You're going to hear them played. You want to get two out of three. You want to find out what time of day it is and what's happening as the compositions are played. that come back to any of you? A cotton wool still in your ears, Mr. Adams? No, sir, I don't, know the, don't know the tune at all. Know the air, Mr. Taylor? Uh, this is the time of
8: night
7: when I think of Oscar Levin. <laughs> 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 well, that's from no Coward's Mad Dogs and Englishmen Go Out in the Midday Sun, and of course, midday is the time and walking is the activity. Uh, let's see if you can get the next one, Mr. Cohen. Have two hands, Mr. Taylor and Mr. Kerrigan. Yeah, Mr. you Kierke. better give it to me. I mean, I've got to save my face. Uh, all right, I don't see why you should want to, Mr. Taylor.
19: <laughs> <laughs>
4: <laughs>
19: well, I can't get a better offer.
7: <laughs> <laughs> it's afternoon. It's afternoon of what? Mm-hmm. It's what somebody called afternoon on the farm, but it's. Uh, <laughs> The afternoon of a fawn. Like and what are the what the fawns doing in the in the composition? Presumably. Well, I, I'd rather you wouldn't have at a venue. Well, uh, roughly speaking, Prevorting. perhaps that's the wrong way well, of putting it. Well, he's fawning. He's uh, having fawn. He's daydreaming. Well, enjoying the afternoon in the company of the, of the nymphs, I believe. yeah. Uh, y- yes. Yes, more or less. <laughs> <laughs> Do I have to put these words in your mouth, Mr. Tanner? Well, uh, <laughs> uh, Mr. Con, let's have the third and last. That's something, seems to me, we all heard in school at a very early age. Sounds like Mother McCree. Well, something like it. It isn't exactly. Three fishers went sailing away to the west, away to the west as the sun went down.
21: By Charles Kingsley.
7: Is it by Charles Kingsley? That's right. By Charles Kingsley. So it's sundown, and it's a description of three fishers going sailing. Mm -hmm. And that loses us a $50 Uh, war bond going to Mr. Victor and a set of the Britannica also. How about this one from Irving Miller of New York? This is about various kings and princes and generals. First, what king, after surrendering to Germany, remained in his own country as a prisoner? Mr. Curran. Uh, king of the Belgians. Yes. The uh, this war. What was his name? What is Albert. his name? No. Leopold. Leopold. Leopold, Leopold the Leopold. what? King of the Belgians. Uh, well, uh, Leopold the uh, <laughs> uh, second. I, uh, I, mean? I think it's the third. third. It's
21: a, I think
7: it's the third. Leopold the third of Belgium. What German prince is helping to fight the Nazis. The German prince helping to fight the Nazis. Now, Mr. Kieran. Well, you mean, uh, uh, well, Prince uh, Louis of Battenberg, of course, is no longer. He's a well, German. Uh, he's an In- he's an In- of German with some of, German yeah, blood. German yeah. royal blood. Well, I meant and an one who is other Germans, matter of fact. Uh, it's uh, the Prince Bernhard zu lippe the husband of Princess Juliana of Holland. Uh, who is uh, a firm anti-fascist. What does she call him? <laughs> I have no idea. Bernie, I imagine. Bernie.
4: <laughs>
7: <laughs> now, what general, what general, after his country had surrendered, remained to organize a continued resistance? Mr. Kieran. Well, his country was conquered. General Mihailovich. General Dryan Mihailovich of Yugoslavia, yes. One of the great heroes of this war. Except that technically he wasn't a general when he, uh... uh when he stayed. Is that so? Well, he's a general now. He's just a mere colonel. Well, and, yeah. uh, He uh, was a colonel then, but he's going to stay a general from now on. And see if we can get started on this one from Helen Hobbs of Indianapolis. Each of the following is a member of a union or league of states or nations. Identify the whole group. Azerbaijan, Uzbek, Tajik. Mr. St. John. They are uh, Soviets within the Soviet correct. Republic. Holland, USSR, Belgium, Brazil. What larger group contains all those? Mr. Adams? United Nations. That's correct. Uh, United States, Costa Rica, Argentina. Mr. That's, Kieran? Well, that's the, uh, the Union of uh, North and South America. I'll give uh, three out of three, and that's all we have time for. Thank you, Mr. St. John, joining in the fun tonight. In a few seconds, I'll announce next week's guest, and tonight, Lucky Strike has paid out three sets of the Encyclopedia Britannica and three $50 war bonds.
0: Some tough questions after about 80 years. Tough for us today, maybe not so tough for the intrepid panelists in information please, including writer-journalist Robert St. John and composer-conductor Deems Taylor. That show came from October 2, 1942. We heard from a librarian and frontier gentleman, and we're going to hear from another one at the Crime Club, next, here on Skywave Audio Theatre. Crime clubs were all the rage during the first part of the 20th century as a great way to sell books, too, and it was natural for radio to pick up on the idea. The radio series Crime Club had a touch of class, a suitably literary quality, and a slightly stuffy librarian, too, played by Raymond Edward Johnson early on when he wasn't too busy for hosting the Inner Sanctum. And if the door to the library had creaked, well, you'd have been right there in the Inner Sanctum. Well, instead of the creaking door, it's a ringing telephone that ushers in each week's story, This one is called Cowhide. It's Crime Club from October 1st, 1947.
23: The Mutual Broadcasting System presents...
14: Hello, I hope I haven't kept you waiting. Yes, this is the Crime Club. I'm the librarian... Cowhide. Yes, we have that story for you. Come right over. <laughs> ah, you're here. Good. Take the easy chair by the window. Comfortable? The manuscript is on this shelf. Here it is, Cowhide. The very intriguing story of a suitcase that was packed with murder. Let's look at it under the reading lamp. It was early afternoon, and the customer's room in the brokerage offices on the second floor of a midtown office building was crowded, as usual. Harold Phillips, a middle-aged clerk, crossed the large room, nervously adjusting his tie, and stopped outside the office of Mark Baldwin, the manager.
21: Come in.
7: Excuse me, Mr. Baldwin. Oh,
21: Phillips. Come in, come in, please.
7: Thank you, sir. You sent for me, Mr. Baldwin. Come here, Phillips. I hope nothing is wrong, sir, my books. Sit down. I've always been very careful, sir. I never let a page go without checking and rechecking. Phillips... You've been with this company for 30 years. Yes, sir. Have you ever thought of leaving us? Leaving? Why, no, sir. Not once in 30 years? Well, I... <laughs> Please don't hold it against me, sir. There were times when I thought I might do better somewhere else. But... Yes? I realized that I couldn't, and I stopped thinking about it. It's been 15 years since I... Good for you, Phillips. I guess we can trust you. And what? Open that suitcase on my desk. Yes, sir. Good heavens. Securities. Half a million dollars' worth. And they're all negotiable. But I... Well, look here, Mr. Baldwin. If you're accusing me... Hmm? What are you talking about? If you're accusing me of having packed that suitcase... Phillips... You don't know me, sir. You've been the manager of this office less than a year. But I have a record of excellent service. You can ask the gentleman in the main office if you want to. Phillips, don't be an idiot. I'm not accusing you. But the suitcase. going to our Los Angeles office. Oh. You're going to take it there. I? Naturally. You're the only one I can trust with it. But such transfers
21: are usually made I know all about it. Now, you'll leave tonight on the 9 o'clock train. I've reserved a drawing room for you. Yes, sir. You'll be careful, of course. You won't leave that drawing
7: room for one minute. But Mr. Baldwin... I said not for one minute, Phillips. And as for your meals... I'll make arrangements. That's the idea. Uh, One more thing, Phillips. Yes, sir. You are not to discuss this matter with anyone. Not with anyone, including the members of your own family. But Los Angeles, Mr. Baldwin, how can I explain that to Doris, my daughter? Don't. But I'm going away for a long time, for two weeks, perhaps. Think up a good excuse. Only you, I, and the manager of the Los Angeles office know about this transfer. We want nothing to happen to that suitcase or to you. Yes, sir. In other words, Mr. Phillips, we don't want you killed. Well, thank you, sir. I appreciate your consideration. Yes. yes I'll, I'll go home and pack after closing time, of course. Then will I take the suitcase home with me? No. You stop back here on your way to the train and I'll give it to you. Would the 8 o'clock be all right? Fine. But be prompt. The train leaves at 9. Well, I won't be late. And... Uh, Now, Mr. Baldwin, if I may say so. Yes. Thank you for your confidence in me. Dad? In here, Doris, my room. Did you eat? Scrambled eggs.
5: You would. Every time I come home late from work, you... Hey, what's going on here? I'm
7: just packing.
5: Walking out on me?
7: Only for a little while, dear. What? Yes, Mr. Baldwin has uh, given me a 2 weeks vacation. Oh. Uh, with pay, of course. Oh, now, don't stare at me like a frightened little girl.
5: Dad, where are you going?
7: Uh, Aunt Martha's. Uh, that sister of mine has been after me to pay her a visit. But for... you
5: had two weeks vacation, not three months ago.
7: Well, Mr. Baldwin wants me to have another one. Why? As a bonus for my good work. Thirty years on one job.
5: Why not cash?
7: He's only the manager of a branch office, dear. Now stop worrying. You'll get wrinkles.
5: Dad, he's not sending you away because of something that happened this afternoon.
7: What do you mean, darling?
5: you, You didn't get sick. Oh, no. Those headaches you used to complain about. Oh,
22: I haven't had one since... Well,
5: I know you've been seeing the doctor. Oh? I didn't say anything because you didn't. I... I thought, if you didn't want me to know...
7: (laughs) There's no keeping a secret from you, is there? (laughs) Well, everything's all right. My blood pressure's down. Yes,
5: but this afternoon... A
7: mild attack, nothing serious. But Mr. Baldwin happened to notice it, and... Well, he's very fond of me and the kind who appreciates loyalty.
5: Dad, why won't you give up your job?
7: Give it up? what would I do?
5: Must you do anything? I'm making enough for both of us.
7: Nonsense, dear. You're you're going to be married someday. Oh, sure. Don't you think so?
5: First, I've got to find a man.
7: What's wrong with the men you know now? Oh,
5: why talk about them? Listen, Dad, you've been working long enough.
7: And I'm going to keep right on working. Uh, Goodbye, dear. I'll see you in two weeks.
5: Oh, no, you don't. I'm going to station with you.
7: Haven't you a date for tonight?
5: I'll call it off.
7: You'll do nothing of the kind. Dad. Why? I'm sorry, dear. I didn't mean to lose my temper.
5: It's all right.
7: I, when you see, treating me like an invalid.
5: I just wanted to see you off,
4: Dad.
7: It isn't necessary. You've got a date. Keep it. Oh, goodbye, darling.
4: Goodbye. goodbye. Take
7: good care of yourself. <laughs> Hello.
5: I'd like to see Mr. Kenneth Badger.
7: I'm Ken Badger.
5: Are you the private detective?
7: Well, so they say.
5: But uh, all right, take a look at this newspaper for free. Read it.
7: Now look, Miss. Read I the ha-
5: headline, please.
7: You've got a way about you. Okay. Brokerage clerk disappears with half a million. Harold Phillips, for thirty years a clerk in the brokerage offices of. How am I doing, kid? Do I pass the literacy test?
5: M- my name's Doris.
7: Hmm, my favorite name.
5: Harold Phillips is my father.
7: Mm Mm-hmm. Well, what'd you say?
5: Mr. Badger, I'm desperate.
7: A good-looking girl like you. My
5: father didn't steal those securities.
7: What a shame. I
5: know he didn't. And you're going to find him and prove that he didn't. I am? Yes.
4: Uh, Will you? Now,
7: listen, honey. There comes a time in every man's life when he's got to say no. This is my time. But
5: you don't know my father. Is that bad? He's not a thief. He's the most honest, the most conscientious...
7: (laughs) Oh, somebody told you about my weakness, huh?
5: Well, you'd only try to understand. Ned's been with that company for 30 years, mm-hmm. handling money and securities every day. If he wanted to steal, he could have done it in dribs and drabs, picking the books.
7: Mm-hmm.
5: He didn't have to wait until yesterday to take a half a million at one time.
7: Maybe he didn't get the idea until yesterday.
5: Oh,
4: please. Oh, cut it
7: out, will you?
4: <laughs> yes.
7: Will you please cut it out? I'm not going to be carried away by a flood. All right.
5: All right, Mr. Magic. You don't have to take this, Kate. But I'll tell you what I really think.
7: Over a cup of coffee?
5: When I came home from work last night, Dad was packing.
7: There's a nice little restaurant down the street. Come on. Listen to me.
5: Dad said that Mr. Baldwin, the manager of his office, had given him a two-week vacation. He was going to spend it with Aunt Martha at her place in the country. I I phoned Aunt Martha this morning.
7: Dad wasn't there.
5: No. Mr. Badger, my father wouldn't lie to me. Something happened to him last night. What do you think? He might have been kidnapped or or murdered. What? Mr. Baldwin's got those securities. That's why he told Dad he could go away. And then last night his dad was going to the station. Wait a
19: minute.
7: Why did you phone Aunt Martha this morning?
5: Dad hasn't been feeling well. I I was worried. Mm
7: Mm-hmm. I'm going to give you a break, baby. Oh? Only because I like you. But there's one condition. What? From now on, it's Ken.
5: Yes, Ken.
7: Okay, Doris. I'm going down to the brokerage office to see what Mr. Baldwin looks like. Oh, I'm
5: going with you. You are? I am.
7: That's what I said. You are. (laughs) Now, you stay here, Dara.
5: Oh, but, Ken, I... Here, baby.
7: I want Baldwin all to myself.
5: Well... I've
7: got a special interest in international pigs, so... So long, honey. I'll see you later. Come in. Why? Badger, what are you doing here? Inspector Hopkins. My old friend. I asked you a question, Ken. I've been retained. By who? Doris Phillips, the daughter of... Well, Inspector, don't I get a knockdown? If it'll make you happy. (laughs) I'm talking about those two nice people over there. Walter Conrad, the assistant manager, and that's Joyce Lipton. Mark Baldwin's private secretary. How do
5: you do?
24: How How do
7: you do? Joyce Lipton. Say, haven't we, uh... Have we? Oh, I'm pretty sure of it, but, uh, where? Now, see here, Ken, I'm conducting an investigation. Oh, you're a hard man, Inspector. All the pretty women... State your business and get out of here. Well, since you put it so politely... I'm looking for Mark Baldwin. That's good. So am I. What? Anything else, Kent? Now, wait a minute. Let me get this straight. Are you saying that Baldwin and Phillips... That seems to be his pet theory, Mr. Badger. Shut up, Conrad. All you have to do is answer questions. And all you have to do, Inspector, is to ask them. Intelligent ones. You're looking for trouble, aren't you? Just because Mr. Baldwin didn't come to the office today doesn't mean that he and Phillips took those securities. He didn't show up at his hotel all night, either. That can mean anything, Inspector. Well, son, how do you do, huh? Mr. Conrad. Are you butting in, Ken? Just for a couple of questions, Inspector. Mr. Conrad, when was the last time you saw Mark Baldwin? When I left the office yesterday, about 6 o'clock. And you, Joyce? 7 o'clock.
24: Mr. Baldwin wanted me to stay for some last-minute
7: dictation. Hmm. Dictation, Mr. Baxter. Oh, yes. Uh, Anybody see him after that? We've been all through that, Ken. My client wants to know, Inspector.
24: Well, I don't know who saw him afterwards. I left at 7 o'clock.
7: I don't suppose you realize how ridiculous this is, do you? Now, see here, Conrad. All these questions about Mr. Baldwin. If he had a part in this robbery, do you think he'd be fool enough to disappear? It's been done before, mister. Mark Baldwin wouldn't take half a million dollars to share with a clerk. Is uh, that your opinion, too, Miss Lipton?
24: (laughs) I have no opinion, I just can't believe that either Mr. Baldwin or Mr. Phillips could have done such a thing.
7: Yes. Now, Mr. Conrad, let me tell you something about who takes and who shares. Hey, Inspector. Ken, if you don't stop butting in. Take a look over here. I uh, think you'll be my friend again. Huh? What did you find? I always travel with my nose close to the carpet. My dog taught me that trick. Listen, Ken. Down down here. Huh? Tell me what they look like to you. Hmm. Bloodstains that somebody tried to wash out funny. That's what they look like to me. They form a line from the desk to the coat closet. What do we do now, Inspector? I'll let you know. (coughs) Yeah, there's one thing I didn't expect. Would you say he's dead? I don't say anything when the coroner gets here, Ken. Mr. Conrad, who's that man? Baldwin or Phillips? That... that's Mr. Baldwin. (laughs) Oh, no, no, Doris, you can't come in. I've
5: got to know what's going on, Ken. I
7: told you I'll tell you later. Why
5: did all those men come here? The, those policemen and, and the men with the cameras? They're
7: holding a convention.
5: Somebody's been murdered. Oh my! Boy. Dad.
7: No, Mister Baldwin. Oh,
5: so.
7: Oh, no. oh, all right, all right. I'm still working for you, oh,
5: Ken. You know what they're going to think?
7: Just keep looking at those quotations. I'll be out soon as I can. <laughs> Stabbed in the back, huh? Died between 8 and 9 o'clock last night. What's that, Inspector? You still here? Between 8 and 9 o'clock last night, huh? That's about when Baldwin was murdered, according to the coroner. Holy smoke, and the old guy's innocent. Sure. I'm not kidding. Phillips didn't do it. His daughter told me he took an 8 o'clock train last night. Yeah? Where was he going? To the country to see his sister, Aunt Martha. So it's Aunt Martha, huh? Oh, all right, so I'm gone for the girl, but... Did, Did he get there? Did he... Oh... All right, you win, Inspector. You've got logic. Yeah, stick around, Sonny boy. I'm giving free lessons today. Now, Mr. Conrad, you get first crack at the truth. I've told you everything I know, Inspector. I haven't asked you everything. What was kept in that safe? Oh, bond securities, cash. Who knew the combination? Mr. Baldwin, myself. You too, Miss Lipton?
24: I never went to that safe unless it was open.
7: Did you know the combination? Of course not. Look here, Inspector. What are you driving at? Somebody gave Harold Phillips those securities. Somebody did nothing of the kind. Phillips knew the combination of that safe. A clerk? He was our oldest employee. We felt that we could trust him. Whoever dreamed that he would... I'll take that, Miss Lipton.
14: But it
24: might be company business, Inspector.
7: Yeah, it might. Hello? Yeah, Hopkins talking. Hmm, you don't say. Good. Good perfect. Tell Detective Riley to hop on a plane right away. Yeah, I know he's with homicide. We want Phillips for murder. Well, they picked him up in Chicago on a train with two suitcases. What's the matter, Ken? No comments from Lovelorn? What about the security? That's the next episode tomorrow morning at police headquarters. What do you mean? The suitcase wasn't loaded with clothing and personal effects, and it wasn't loaded with securities either. Huh? It was loaded, Ken, with newspapers. (laughs) All right, Phillips, let's forget everything you've told me so far. But I've told you the truth, Inspector Hopkins. Yeah. Well, now tell me a few lies. I don't know what to say to you. I didn't kill Mr. Baldwin. I didn't steal any securities. You didn't load that suitcase with newspapers either. No. Baldwin did that, huh? And then he stabbed himself in the back. He was alive when I left him at 8.20 the other night. He uh, wasn't in the closet? I told you he was alive, sitting at his desk. Where are the securities, Phillips? I thought they were in the suitcase. Ah. Uh-huh. listen to me, Inspector. Mr. Baldwin told me to deliver the securities to our Los Angeles office. He didn't want anyone to know. Where
19: are they, mister? He
7: wouldn't even let me tell Doris where I was going. I had to lie to her about a two-week vacation that I was going to spend with my sister, Martha. Phillips, I... You've got to believe me, Inspector. I saw the securities in the afternoon. They were in that suitcase. But Mr. Baldwin wouldn't let me take it home. Yeah. I met him that evening at the office, his office, and he handed me the suitcase, locked, and, and train ticket. One way? Yes, he said the manager of the Los Angeles office would give me a return ticket. <laughs> you, you've got to believe me, Inspector. Come on, Phillips. Let's start from the beginning. Now, you knew Baldwin was working late, so you went to the office and killed him. No. You opened the safe and took the securities. Then you took a train for Chicago with a load of newspapers. No, I didn't. Just in case you got picked up, you figured we might take you for a poor sucker who was being framed. That's exactly what I am, but you won't opened... Hold everything, Phillips. Yeah? Uh-huh. what did he say? Yeah, that's what I thought. All right, Dempsey. Phillips, we've just had Los Angeles on the phone. Oh. Well, then the manager out there has told you that He didn't I... tell me. He spoke to my assistant. Well, what's the difference? You know I'm innocent. He was expecting no security. No, mister. What? Well, but there must be some mistake. Mr. Baldwin told me... Sit down, Phillips. Have a cigarette. And then talk. Ken Coffee with tears, honey Bad combination Did you
5: get Inspector Hopkins? Yes, darling When can I see my father?
7: Will you promise not to turn on the faucets? Ken You can see him anytime He's just in booked Oh Murder in the first degree Without a confession
5: He didn't do it, Ken.
7: The inspector also told me a lot of other things. He
5: didn't do it, Ken. Things your
7: father told him. Doris. Yes? Your father knew he wasn't going to Aunt Martha's. What? He was going to California on orders from Baldwin.
5: But he he told me he... What time is it? Uh, Quarter past four. But
7: Ken... Come on, let's get out of here.
5: Are we going down to the prison?
7: Nope. We're going to find out more about a certain security transfer about a certain gal with red hair and blue eyes. In a way that's very tantalizing.
24: No, Mr. Badger, I've never been there. Well, then, how how about Oh, the... there either.
7: Okay, Joyce. Can't blame a guy for trying, can you? I can. <laughs> North wind blew me right out of my... Say... Have you heard the latest about Philip? No. He's going to be indicted for murder.
24: Oh, for pity's sake, then. He is guilty after all.
7: Only indicted, baby. He's still got an alibi. Really? He claims Baldwin sent him to Los Angeles for those securities.
24: Los Angeles? Uh, You mean our office out there?
7: Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Sort of transfer.
24: Who told you about it?
7: My bosom pal and crony, Inspector Hopkins. Oh. If If a transfer had been arranged, would there be a record of it? Of course. In the form of correspondence? Possibly. Well, now we're talking the same language. Where's the correspondence? It's in those files. I mean the letters he dictated when he asked you to stay late.
24: Oh, they're in my stenographic notebook. Still there, huh? I I didn't type them up.
7: Uh Uh-oh. That's not being a good secretary, Joyce.
24: Why don't you mind your own business?
7: Okay, I'll just take the book and let Inspector Hopkins mind his business.
24: Well, I was going to type them up, but Mr. Baldwin told me to go home. And then the next morning... Well, I don't have to tell you about the next morning, do I? Aren't you glad? There's nothing in that book about transfer of security. Nothing? What do you mean?
7: Well, it might be in code. you know, ten thousand dollars a word spelled backwards.
24: Well, I don't think so, because
7: I know. I'll uh, I'll take the book down to police headquarters. Why? Well, they've got some of the best typists and code busters in the world. Oh, well, Miss Lipson. Hello, what is... Conrad. Uh, what are you doing in this office? Just talking to a lady. You talk to no one but me, understand? <laughs> Oh, you've been promoted, huh?
21: I'm in charge here now, and I don't want snoopers around. The, the reason? This is a private office. If you have any business, the customer's room is open every day from
7: ten to three. Now, get out. Conrad, did you ever get a massage? You, you wouldn't dare. Oh, I would. But why it on you? You hoodlum. Miss Lipton, yes. next time such characters come in here, I'll see
5: well, Ken, what did you find out? That's
7: what I'm going to find out, Doris, counts. What do you mean? You go back to your apartment and wait for my call. Uh, and you? Police headquarters. And wishes luck. Hello. Ken? For Pete's sake, Doris, where have you been? Don't
5: be angry, dear. I
7: told you to go back to your apartment and wait for my call. I did,
5: but you didn't call for three hours. And then I had an idea. Where are you now? In a drugstore.
7: Oh, that's nice. Tell them to set up one for me, too. A double model with a... you
5: don't understand. This drugstore is in the building my father works in. The brokerage offices are on the second
7: floor. What got you there? A
5: terrific idea. Now I need help. What's the matter? How soon can you get here?
7: Fifteen minutes. What's the matter, Doris?
5: I'll tell you when I see you. But hurry.
7: All right, kid, you just leave him to me. I'll take care of him.
5: But Don't be rough with him, Ken. He's not
7: young. Uh-huh. So you went out and got a detective, huh? What's this about you refusing to answer questions, mister? I got a right to, ain't I, when they come from her. She's only a civilian, like me. What's your name? Joseph. Now, look, officer. Do you know Harold Phillips? Sure, I do. I've seen him lots of times when he was working late in the brokerage office. Did
5: you see him the night of the murder?
7: I ain't talking to you, lady. All right, then you'll talk to me. Sure, I seen him. I took him up in the elevator. What time? Now, listen, you. All
5: right, all right. Tell
14: him.
7: It was 8.15, I rung him down again at exactly 8.30. You talk like radio time, pal.
14: I got it on my mind. Another detective asked me them same questions about an hour ago. Showed him the book. What book?
5: That's what I wanted to see, Ken. The book everybody must sign when they come in and go out of an office building after 6 o'clock.
7: Did you... Did you think of that all by yourself?
14: <laughs> all of a sudden.
7: Where's the book, Joseph? Right here. And that's where
14: Mr. Phillips signed it. Darling. Hey, are you talking to me?
7: Not tonight, Joseph. You go right up and down your elevator. Come on, Dorothy.
14: That does it,
5: Ken. That proves Dad's innocence.
7: And you thought of that all by yourself?
5: Dad wouldn't have signed that book if he were going to steal or commit murder. He wouldn't have used the elevator.
7: And I went to school and paid for a license.
5: What are you talking about?
7: Just thinking out loud about how good I am. Will you do me one favor? Oh, you
5: know I will. Then go home. What?
7: And stay there. And don't move until you hear from me. Well. Hiya, Cookie. You mind, mind if I come in?
24: You have the nicest way of
7: asking. I didn't mean to push you. An old habit I picked up in the subway. What do you want? Well, well. It's a nice place. You, uh... You live here alone?
24: Now, listen, Mr. Badger.
7: Joyce, when will you learn to call me, Kim?
24: I'll be at the office at 9 o'clock in the morning. Now, if you have anything... I have
7: your stenographic notebook.
24: Oh. Did the police get anything out of it?
4: Mm-hmm.
7: A murderer. Really? You're pretty cute, baby. Huh.
24: What did Philip have to do with my notebook? Fingerprint. On my notebook?
7: You're not working on all cylinders, Cookie. They were your fingerprints.
24: I'm afraid I don't follow you, Mr. Badger.
7: You don't have to. I'll follow you.
5: <laughs> Why?
7: Oh, I knew I met you somewhere before. But I don't recognize the gun.
5: I let you pull a fast one on me, didn't I?
24: <laughs> I have a lot of fun, Ken. Because you're going to be a dead duck in about two minutes.
7: Annie Joyce, the confidence gal. How long do they keep you in stir year and two months. Yep. You've come a long way in the last eight years, baby. From swindling to murder. Well... Now, wait a minute. You, you know, I know about don't have you to be know. so impatient. This uh, gun
24: doesn't oh, shoot, oh, but you know, what
7: it what does it to catch it's on. It's all right with me if it doesn't shoot at all. Tell me, uh, how did you get Baldwin to turn his back for the knife? I didn't. He was kissing me when I killed him. Oh, you're just a woman for me.
24: Phillips had gone up with a loaded suitcase and... Mark and I were going to wait until he'd been arrested and sent to jail, and then...
7: You were going to split a half a million.
24: That's right.
7: But you decided why wait and why split.
24: Unselfish that way.
7: Yeah. But you're going to wait, Cookie, for a quick burn. Well, you won't
24: be around to see
7: it. I'm not so sure of that, Miss. Ow! Drop that gun. Oh! She doesn't have to, Inspector. It just changed hands. Well, did <laughs> I do all right, Inspector? For once in your life... When you came in here, I was afraid you was going to close that door with a snap lock on it. Inspector, you don't think much of me, do you? You want the truth. No, just skip it.
5: Imagine hiding those securities under a rug. Yeah,
7: and such a nice rug, too.
5: A half a million dollars worth in her apartment. And me
7: stepping on it all the time.
5: Um, Ken. Yes, dear? How well did you know her?
7: Doris, I told you. I I saw her in a courtroom eight years ago.
5: And you remembered her for so long?
7: I've got a weakness for redheads.
5: I'm not a redhead.
7: Oh, that can be remedied.
5: Would it make you happy?
7: Mm, all over. Oh. Hey, <laughs> take it easy. Your father's asleep on that chair. Suppose he wakes up and... And? and? Well, suppose he does.
5: Dad won't mind.
7: Will you? Well... Well, you, we'll... Oh, my well, Dad. I can't wait all night, Doris. I've got to go to bed.
14: And so closes tonight's story, Cowhide. Stedman Coles wrote the radio script. Roger Bauer produced and directed. Bill Quinn played Ken Badger. Joan Tompkins was Doris Phillips. Cameron Pudum was Harold Phillips. Eleanor Phelps played Joyce Lipton, Joe Latham was Inspector Hopkins, and Murray Forbes was Walter Conrad. Oh, I beg your pardon. Hello, I hope I haven't kept you waiting. Yes, this is the crime club. I'm the librarian. Yes, come over a week from tonight. Good. We have the very intriguing story of a decision that almost cost a man's life. It's called Sentence of Death... In the meantime... Well, in the meantime, there is a new crime club book available this week and every week at bookstores everywhere. Yes, it's available now. Fine. And we look for you next week. Oh, yes. And another thing. Traffic accidents have been increasing at an alarming rate. Avoid them by respecting the rights of your neighbor on the road. And by being sure that you and the car you are driving... Are in good condition.
7: This program came from New York. Stay tuned now for another mutual favorite. Quiet, please, follows in just a moment. This is the Mutual Broadcasting System.
0: There you have our second librarian for this week. He cracked open a story from the Crime Club collection. It was called Cowhide, a story about a suitcase from October 1st, 1947. Waiting in the wings, it's Philip Marlowe. This is Skywave Audio Theater. Why has Norma Delaney disappeared? And what does a horoscope have to do with it? and a fortune teller, and a guy who remembers phone numbers, a white coupé, and a fondness for gloves, and uh, some exotic footwear, and you have a story called The Persian Slippers. Gerald Moore is Philip Marlowe in The Persian Slippers from October 3rd, 1948.
22: I felt low, very low the night I set out searching for the girl with the strange hazel eyes. The fog which hung over Los Angeles didn't help. And I felt even worse when I found her. For by then I had death on my hands.
11: From the pen of Raymond Chandler, outstanding author of crime fiction, comes his most famous character as CBS presents (laughs) The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. Now with Gerald Moore, starred as Philip Barlow, we bring you tonight's gripping story, The Persian Slippers.
4: One
22: of those thin, chilly fogs that sneaked in from the Pacific and it hung vaguely to the streetlights along the Sunset Strip. It was a kind of a fog that you could see through, but everything was out of focus. Made you start wondering what you were going to do when you were 90 and you were all alone. I'd have liked to have spent the night in a room full of noisy extroverts playing charades. But instead, I had to eat a quick dinner and drive up into the secluded Hollywood Hills to meet a guy. A guy who had nothing but trouble on his mind. When I pushed the buzzer, I had the feeling of wishing I was someplace else. Carl Delaney himself opened the door. He was grim and brusque and to the point.
7: Marlowe? That's right. Come in, Marlowe. I appreciate this. You're coming up here after business hours, I mean. I wouldn't have asked, except, uh, well, perhaps i waited too long as it is. Sit down.
22: Thanks. Waited too long for what, Mr. Delaney?
7: Thirty-six hours ago, my wife disappeared. Marla, you've got to find her for me. Find her just as fast as you can. Wait
22: a minute. Disappeared, you said. Would you mind playing that part back a little slower?
7: Norma simply walked out that door, got in her car, and drove off to get hold of herself, as she always does when we've quarreled. And always before, she's come back in an hour or so. This time... This
22: time, she simply didn't come back. Is that it?
7: Look, Mr. Delaney, I could... You'd uh... better let me finish before you do anything. Lately, my wife has been brooding over something, something serious that she refused to discuss. I've caught her crying several times, and she's not a woman given to tears. Marlowe, I'm sure that unless we move fast, when
22: we do find her, we're going to find her dead. Suicide? Yeah. thick, blunt hand, Delaney reached for a color portrait lying face down on the table and gave it to me. I looked and saw the face of a dream. A beautiful dream with strange hazel eyes and soft black hair. I felt Delaney watching me as I glanced up in time to catch the fading end of a very ugly expression on his face. I handed the picture back to him and he laid it on the table again, face down. Then he took me upstairs to Norma's room. It was a nice, frilly room, typically haunted by elusive sweet smells. There was only one incongruous note. What was the horoscope doing on her desk? From the looks of a picture, I knew that Norma was attractive enough that she didn't need to look to the stars for a future. A horoscope? Yeah, you know how women are. Marla, will you find her for me? Well, I'll try. My rate is $25 a day plus expenses. And remember, you hired me to find her, not bring her back. Fair
7: enough, you just find her. I'll be satisfied.
22: Hmm. I'll need a starting point. Were there any phone calls or letters or anything that might be a lead? What about friends?
7: We have no close friends. Norma always stayed to herself. Wait, uh, there was a phone call yesterday from uh, Madame Jeanette, I think it was.
22: Who's that, a dressmaker?
7: I haven't any idea. She wanted to speak to Mrs. Delaney. I told her Norma was out and she asked that my wife call her when she got back. That's all there was to it.
22: Anything else you can tell me? No. Uh, no,
7: it's not much to go on.
22: I'll see what I can do, Mr. Delaney.
7: I'll be here all
8: night,
22: Marlowe. Call me if you need anything. Hey, I'll do that. Good night. <laughs> I drove back through the persistent fog, the Sunset Boulevard. It was 9.30. I knew it was going to be like tracking a hummingbird through the petrified forest by the bent twigs, but I got a classified directory and I started digging. I checked the hairdressers, the manicurists, and the milliners, and I was just about to start on the interior decorators when I remembered the horoscope on Norma's desk. I quickly turned to the personal consultants. Yeah, there it was, Madame Jeanette. Her establishment, located in the dubious neighborhood south of Olvera Street, turned out to be a tacky cottage set back next to an alley. It was as dark inside as out. I was pounding on the door like a vampire at sunrise when a newsboy came up the path.
25: Looking for Madame Jeanette?
22: Yeah, yeah, you know her?
25: Sure, she tells fortunes. Says I've got a great career line, you want to see it?
22: Not right now, thanks. And I'll say for her that she's a sound sleeper.
25: Maybe, but not so early as this. About this time she's always hanging around that bar on the corner. Tonight she's throwing a farewell party in there.
22: Farewell party, who for?
25: Herself, she's leaving town.
22: Oh, thanks a lot. Here, kid.
25: Gee, a buck. My old man'll swear I've been shooting crap again.
4: Give me another one,
19: Charlie? Not every night. I say goodbye to my dear old neighborhood.
25: Muscatel tell again, Jeanette. Yeah. Did
19: I say dear old neighborhood, Charlie?
25: I think you did, Jeanette.
19: Must have had one too many then. Because of all the low, flea-bitten row of shacks I ever lived in, this is the new low. Oh
25: Jeanette, that's no way to talk. You hurt my feelings. Pinky,
19: there ain't nothing like a little beer to soothe hurt feelings.
25: <laughs> yeah, you said it. Jeanette, can I have another? Yeah.
19: Charlie, give Pinky another. Now, this is his last. The last? I thought you said it was a farewell party. Hey, you and all your dogs. This dog's to get me out of this rat trap of a town, see? It's the last I want to see out of it in all my life, see? Yeah, 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 Another we muscatel, see. Another muscatel,
25: Johnny. Hold on a minute, Jeanette. Hey, what'll it be, mister?
22: Something just a bit drier than muscatel. Say, scotch?
19: It's on me, mister. It's my party.
22: Well, well, this is indeed a pleasure. You're the Madame Jeanette, aren't you?
19: Yeah, Why?
22: You're all of 20 years younger than what I expected.
19: Probably the life I lead. Hey, wait a minute. Why should you be expecting anything about me? I don't know you.
22: Perhaps not, but I know you.
19: From where?
22: Oh, you're more famous than you think. Your reputation has spread far beyond Olvera Street. In fact, it's gone up as far as the Sunset Strip, Madame Jeanette.
19: No kidding.
22: How would you kid a fortune teller? Don't you know all, see all, and tell all? Well... And judging from that Spanish shawl, your Hungarian skirt, and those embroidered Persian slippers, I'm beginning to think your fame is not only local, but international.
19: Say, you're beginning to make me feel like I shouldn't be giving up this racket after all.
22: Giving up fortune-telling? No.
19: Yeah. I'm leaving town on the midnight train. Gonna spread my talents all over the East, and I'm not coming back.
22: Don't tell me your crystal ball has laid a golden egg.
19: So to speak, yeah. Yeah. Come into some lettuce. Suddenly,
22: that's always nice. Well, I guess it means you won't be interested in the few paltry dollars I would intended to spend with you.
25: Hey, can I have another beer, Jim? Shut up, Pinky Blow. Ah, oh, just a
19: traveling lady can always use a little extra moolah. What was it you wanted, Bud?
22: I'm looking for someone, Norma Delaney.
19: Norma, De... I'm afraid I don't know anybody by that name.
22: I'm afraid you do.
19: What's your angle? Who are you, anyway?
22: I'm Philip Marlowe, private detective.
19: Some private dick you must be to have to resort to fortune tellers. Come
22: on, Jeanette, look into your crystal Muscatel, see if you can spot Norma Delaney.
19: I told you once, I don't know the name. Now blow.
22: Just a minute, dark eyes. Hey,
19: Charlie. Yeah? This bird's crabbing my party. What kind of a joint is this, anyway? Lady can't sit here and have a farewell party without being insulted by every jerk that drops in.
22: Well, mister? I haven't finished my drink yet. You got pockets, ain't you? Just pour a drink into
25: one of them and take it along. You ain't finishing it here.
22: Charlie reached under the bar for his pick handle, so I left without pursuing the subject further. But I knew Jeanette was lying, writing a purple lipstick about Norma. I walked back to my car, lit a cigarette, and spent a few precious minutes trying to decide whether or not to break into her place and snoop. But then I caught the shadow of a figure slipping up on me from behind. I turned... Wait,
25: wait, don't swing, Mac, don't swing. It's only me, Pinky. I... I was in the bar when you was talking to the madam. That tightwad, Jeanette.
22: Yeah, I saw you. So?
25: She did something the minute you left. <laughs> I figured you might like to know what it was.
22: It all depends.
25: Well, I, I thought it might be worth something to you, like a saw, maybe. Come I, on, you. No! Spill it. Wait a minute. Spill wait, it. Wait, wait. If it's any good at all, it's worth a five and no more. Oh, all right, all right.
22: She she made a phone call. Who to? What'd she say? Nothing.
25: Just some swear words in Spanish. The line was busy. <laughs> well, I, I kept my eyes open and I got the number.
22: All right, let's have it. If you can still remember it. Oh,
25: I, I can remember it easy. Uh, five of first, huh? Here. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, the number was Crenshaw, 1929. Did nine. <laughs> you get it? <laughs> like the year of the big crash. <laughs> <laughs>
22: Thanks to the thirst of an underweight lush, I wasn't at the end of my rope yet. I drove as far as the nearest drugstore, dropped a nickel in the slot, and dialed. Crenshaw, the year of the big crash. Hello? Hello, let me speak to Norman Delaney, please.
15: I'm afraid you must have the wrong number. Look,
22: you, I'm trying to locate Mrs. Delaney. I suggest you help me. How
15: did you get this number? From
22: a client, Mr. Carl Delaney.
15: But that's impossible.
22: Let's stop sparring. We can save each other a lot of wear and tear if we get together and talk this over.
15: Maybe you're right. Yes, that sounds sensible. I'm at the Beachwood Apartments, number four.
22: Check. I'll be right out. Mr. Uh, Pierre Gillum, it says here on the door. Yes. Are you the man who called? Uh Uh-huh, Philip Marlowe. Come in, won't you?
15: You said you were looking for Norma Delaney, Mr. Marlowe. Tell me, what's wrong? Has anything happened to her?
22: Well, her husband seems to think she might have killed herself, but I have a hunch that you might have something interesting to say.
15: no, poor kid, poor Norma. Well, I'll tell you what I can, Marlowe, but it isn't much.
22: Oh, I'm all ears, and I'll sit, Thanks.
15: Well, I was in love with Norma once, briefly, a long time ago. She was a wonderful girl, but her husband was insanely jealous. Mm-hmm. Even though she hadn't loved him for years, he refused to give her up. He even threatened to kill her first. No. Norma and I realized that serious trouble lay ahead, so we parted. Good friends. And I haven't seen her or heard from her in months.
22: I buy it all but the last line. You have seen or heard from her, and recently... I'm not going to argue that. I've told you the truth. You can take it or leave it. i leave it.
15: Suppose we both put our cards on the table. You lied to me when you said Carl Delaney gave you my number. I know because Madame Jeanette called me shortly after
7: you did.
22: Touche. But uh, why did she run to call you at the mention of Norma's name if you two broke up months ago? And incidentally, how did that Ursatz Oracle Jeanette, get mixed up in this in the first place? Uh, that is a long
15: story, Marlowe.
22: Good, I like long stories. I'll bet it begins just for a lock. Norma and I went down to Olvera Street once to have our palms read.
15: Yes, that's exactly how it started. <laughs> Madame Jeanette was an unusual woman. A, a character, you might say.
4: Uh-huh.
15: Well, we became friendly with her. Norma got quite sentimental about her. One day we made a sort of uh, pact. If ever either of us was in trouble and needed the other, we'd go to Madame Jeanette or get a message to her. She would notify the other. So
22: when I walked in asking for Norma, the madam assumed she was in trouble. Right, right. Called me immediately because she herself was leaving town in less than an hour. I know. Well, Mr. Gillam, it's all very interesting, but it's getting me no place. Thanks. If I need you again. Oh no! Again...
15: Uh, wait, Marlow, don't go. Hmm? Uh, I know a lot of details about Norma that uh, that I'm sure will be helpful. Uh, for instance, she she drives a Nash Coupe, powder blue.
22: Powder blue Coupe, huh? Thanks, that'll help.
15: Oh, and and uh, she has a fondness for white gloves. Wears them
22: quite often. I see. Well, I better get moving. No, no. Uh,
15: wait just a minute, Marla. I've got to go. Now, listen, Marla. I told you
22: I was in a hurry. Now, take
15: it easy. Stick around a while.
22: Get away from that door.
15: Look, oh, just who do you think you are? Come busting in here, prying, asking questions. You dirty!
7: Oh! You ask for it, Gillum. I right. <coughs> You got a left too, huh? So have I, brother. <coughs>
22: Gillum sprawled all over his coffee table as limp as a five-cent salad. Outside, I glanced at my watch. Madame Jeanette's train left in 40 minutes. I ran through 22 bucks' worth of red lights, getting down to a cottage because I was sure Gillum's attempted stall was tied in with a departure, but I couldn't figure out why. That is, I couldn't until I switched out my lights and coasted to a stop in front of her place. Then I saw it. Half hidden in the shadows back of the house sat a powder-blue coupe, I got up on the porch close to the front door and listened. Jeanette was talking to a woman. I couldn't catch what they were saying, but one thing was certain. The woman was Norma Delaney. All at once, I realized the talk had stopped. That was my cue. I shoved open the door and went in. Jeanette sat at a table alone, facing me.
19: Well, Mr. Marlowe, you've returned. What is it this time?
22: I'd like my fortune told.
19: Yeah? Now listen close, shoe. I'll make this a short and snappy reading because I'm catching the train in 15 minutes. There's a woman very close to you. In fact, she's right behind you, sucker. What? No!
22: When I finally opened my eyes again, nothing changed. It took me a long time to figure out that the lights were off and it was dark. I climbed up the table leg hand over hand and switched on a lamp. Jeanette's house was absolutely quiet. I had caught a glimpse of a white glove known as a blunt instrument just before I dozed off. And that reminded me what I was down here for. I wobbled through the kitchen and out the back door, but the powder blue coupe was gone. It was 12.15... My head and the fog both had gotten a little thicker, so I just stood there, useful like a ping-pong ball in a bowling alley. It was the sound of footsteps that finally moved me, and the newsboy was back.
25: Well, you again, mister. Did you ever get a hold of Madame Jeanette before she left?
22: Yeah, yeah, but not tight enough. Say, a blue coupe left here a few minutes ago. Did you see it?
25: Nope, I didn't. Gee, I'm sure sorry she went away. She gave me a buck tonight, too said she was coming into a fortune.
22: Hey, you and your career line... Say, what's that down there? In those weeds?
25: I don't know. It looks like some kind of a shoe. Yeah. Yeah, it is a shoe. Yeah, see?
22: What do you know? A Persian slipper. I took the slipper along as a souvenir for my scrapbook and walked back to my car. Trying to fit Norma Delaney's lovely hazel eyes in with that crack on the skull. But I couldn't. Between throbs of my headache, I figured Pierre Gillum would know why Norma had dropped in on the madam so close to train time. I decided to go back and ask him. (laughs) Gillum was as reliable as a two-headed quarter and just as tricky. So when I got to his apartment, I pushed the buzzer, stepped back, and braced myself. There was no fight left in him. He opened the door in his robe, fingered the mouse I had given him, and grinned. Oh, you found your way out by yourself. Uh huh. Say, Gilliam, what was so important about Norma seeing Madame Jeanette just before a train left? I don't know. Uh, you knew enough to try to keep me here to delay me. Why? Oh, Marlowe, I did
15: that for old time's sake, for an old friend. Jeanette asked me to hold you here until midnight, and I tried my best. <laughs> Obviously wasn't good enough. Well, that's all I know about it.
22: I see your phone is off the hook. Do you know that?
15: Yeah, I took it off. It's given me nothing but trouble tonight. I hereby wash my hands of this whole business. I'm going to bed, and I hope to sleep. Good night.
22: I envied him and left to call my client, Carl Delaney. He said he'd be in all night, but the phone kept ringing and ringing, and no one answered. I suddenly got a very creepy feeling. And Twenty minutes later, I pulled to a stop at that small but elegant house lights were on and I saw the powder blue coupé in the garage next to Carl's big black sedan. I ran up the steps. The front door was ajar, so I went in. I found Carl Delaney. In front of the fireplace. Face down on the floor, dead. There was a handbag on a chair. I opened it. Compact cigarettes. And a key to room 340 in the Bradford Arms Hotel. No identification. That color portrait of Norma was standing up on the table this time. And those searching hazel eyes seemed to follow me all the way to the telephone. Lieutenant Ibarra speaking. Phil Marlowe, Ibarra. There's a dead one at 1077 Hollycrest Road. Named Carl Delaney. Murdered.
4: I'll be right out
22: i hung up the phone and then the hair on my neck crawled as i heard the unmistakable sound of a woman's heels on the floor upstairs i ducked behind a door as the heels clicked down the steps and then she entered the room norma delaney was lovely as lovely as a picture she moved calmly and deliberately put a note on the table, picked up the handbag, then turned to face the door I was hiding behind.
26: You can come out now, Mr. Marlowe.
22: Hello, Mrs. Delaney.
26: You can call me Norma now. And if you're thinking of using your gun, perhaps you'll be good enough to read this note first. Here.
22: To whom it may concern, I, Norma Delaney, purposely and with premeditation, shot and killed my husband, Carl. It is beyond me to express how deeply I hated him. And since I must pay for this and cannot endure a public spectacle, I shall take my own life within the next few minutes. Now, look, Norma, no guns. Easy,
26: Marlowe. I'll kill you if necessary. But it would be so pointless now. I'm free at last. And I want to spend a little time left to me in my own way.
22: Norma, if you'll listen stay to me, just a minute.
26: Tonight I made my only friend, Madame Jeanette, happy. And I killed a man who needed killing. Something good. Something bad. So I'm quitting, even up.
22: What do you propose to do with me?
26: You mustn't try to stop me, Marlo. See that closet? Mm-hmm. Get inside. And careful how you move your hands. Turn around to the wall. That's it. Marlo, I'm sorry I had to hit you with Jeanette's
4: tonight. Goodbye. <laughs>
22: Three shots to the smash the lock on that closet door. I heard her driving away just as I got it open. In spite of what she'd said, I couldn't let her kill herself. I ran outside to my car. One glance under the hood was all it took. There was nothing left of the wiring but loose ends. I ran into the street and a miracle happened. The first time in my life a taxi in Los Angeles when I wanted it.
25: I'm sorry, fella. I'm gonna call. Skip
22: it. This is an emergency. Hey, wait
25: a minute. You Police can't... Police
22: business. Get... A girl is driving up the road in a blue coupe. We gotta catch her before she kills herself. Let's go.
25: saw tail taillights just then.
4: Yeah?
22: Can't you go any faster?
25: Not on these curves, brother. I got a wife and kids.
22: Okay, fella. We'll be at the top of the hill when we can get around the next bend. We should spot her then.
25: Yeah. You can see the whole road down the other side. Here we are, mister. This is the top.
22: But I don't see her. Where is she? Hey, wait a minute. Stop here. Turn off your motor. This is
25: Haywire. I don't get it. We were gaining on her and now she just disappears. What's
22: that? The motor. That side road we passed. That's it. Hey,
4: look. Look! Holy
22: smoke. We both saw the awful sight for just an instant. A powder blue coupe with a woman crouched over the wheel. It shot out of that side road, crashed through the guardrail, and fell end over end down into the gorge. By the time we got to the hole in the fence, the wreck was an inferno.
25: No, no use trying to get down there. The whole hillside will be on fire in another minute.
22: I guess she pulled over here into this side road and waited for us to go by. And we did.
25: Yeah, it's sandy here, too. It's a wonder she didn't get stuck. What's the matter?
22: There's something buried here in the sand. One of her tires ran over it. What is it? Well, it's it's plenty, brother. Come on, turn that hack of yours around. Let's get off this mountain. I just found the answer to a lot of questions. (laughs) Lieutenant, we found the body and the wife's suicide note. and one of the boys spotted that fire up on the hill. What is it? The car went off the road, an accident or the suicide? Just a little of both, Ibarra. But we'll talk later. Right now, we got to go to the Bradford Arms Hotel on the double. And please, no siren. The Bradford Arms was a three story walk up. When we got there, Ibarra stationed one man in front, sent another to cover the back, and we started up the stairs. We had reached the second floor when we saw him on the landing above. Gillum. He spotted us at the same time and turned back fast. There, Marlowe. Who's that? That's our boy Bar up here. Gillum. Let's go. There he goes. He's heading for the fire. Escape. Second lieutenant, he's all yours. I got business the other way.
25: Hey, hey, you stop or I shoot! Room 336, 38. Ah,
22: 340. It's all over now. You better drop the gun. Please, it's been neat so far. Don't mess it up. Come on, beautiful. Drop it. It's better.
11: Well, Marlowe, I got him. I had to wing him to bring him down, but here he is. And uh, the lady must be...
22: Uh... Yes, Lieutenant. The lady is Norma Delaney. The girl who wanted to kill her jealous husband and then commit suicide, but didn't want to die doing it. So she used someone else's body, Madame Jeanette's, which was a logical choice because Jeanette was blackmailing her. Thus two vultures with one stone, leaving two lovebirds free to fly away together. Right, Norma? Didn't you give Madame Jeanette money so she'd leave town and tell everybody she was going away?
15: Yes, I did.
22: That way the
11: body wouldn't be missed, huh?
22: Yeah. Isn't it pretty?
15: Oh, lay off,
22: Marlowe, can't you? Okay, Gillum, okay. Ellie Barra, I've got a sour taste in my mouth. I think I'll go home and goggle. Anything else you need? No, I guess not, Phil. I've had all that's necessary. Uh, wait. Just one thing. How'd you get inside this setup? how do you find out it was the dead Madame Jeanette who went over the cliff instead of the very much alive Mrs. Delaney here? Well, Jeanette had on a pair of Persian slippers, Lieutenant. One fell off down at her cottage where Norma murdered her and put her in the trunk of the car. The other one fell off in the sand of that side road when she took Jeanette out of the trunk and propped her up behind the wheel. <laughs> it was lucky, Burra. Just dumb luck. I took a walk later, a long walk, all by myself, through that thin, empty fog in the dark, empty streets. A pair of hazel eyes and a pair of Persian slippers went round and round in my head. And for some reason, I kept thinking, a pair of Persian slippers has two soles and two heels. And it's hard to tell just exactly where the one becomes the other. Adventures of
11: Philip Marlowe, created by Raymond Chandler, stars Gerald Moore and is produced and directed by Norman MacDonald. In tonight's story, The Persian Slippers, Virginia Gregg was heard as Madame Jeanette, with Larry Dobkin as Pierre Gillum and Louis Van Rooten as Carl Delaney. The additional players were Gene Bates as Norma Delaney, Gil Stratton Jr. as the newsboy, Frank Richards as the barkeep, and Tony Barrett as Pinky. Detective Lieutenant Ibarra was played by Jeff Corey. The special music was conceived and conducted by Ivan Dittmars. Be sure to be with us again next week at this same time when Philip Barlow says...
22: Sounded good, real good. A weekend at Malibu, expenses paid with a cash bonus thrown in. But that was before I knew about the henchman, the redhead, and the corpse... These three and a white Panama hat ruined it all for me.
11: The big star-studded array of CBS Sunday shows starts tonight. One, two, three, four, five top entertainment programs that make listening to your CBS station a happy habit. One, Cabin B-13, the popular dramatic show by John Dixon Carr, renowned mystery writer. Two, the new Electric Theatre, guest-starring Henry Fonda tonight, and regularly starring Helen Hayes, first lady of the theatre when she returns from London. Three, Our Miss Brooks, the hilarious comedy success starring Eve Arden. Four, Luman Abner, a brand-new half-hour show of smiles and chuckles with the merchants of Pine Ridge. Five, Strike It Rich. The sensational quiz show with a heart to wind up the sparkling parade of entertainment. Mystery, drama, comedy, excitement tonight over most of these CBS stations. And next Sunday, the first broadcast in the new season for two of radio's greatest stars, Amos and Andy. Yes, Sunday nights are great on CBS. Check your local newspapers for program times. Roy Rowan speaking for CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System.
0: Marlowe got in some metaphors worthy of Pat Novak for hire. We got, let's see, a uh, limp as a five-cent salad and... Uh, pounding on the door like a vampire at sunrise. That was Gerald Moore in The Persian Slippers, The Adventures of Philip Marlowe from October 3rd, 1948, and he lost the client. We're going to round it out with Quiet, Please, here on Skywave Audio Theatre. The literary term is doppelganger, a person's twin or other self, for better or worse. usually seems to be worse. It's an idea that goes back a long way. Add a time twist, and you have the story of a man who is beside himself, literally. His name is John Smith. That's asking for a duplicate right there. And he's on a collision course with his future, or is it his past, self. Our story is called Meet John Smith, John, from our Department of Redundancy Department. It's Quiet, Please, of October 3rd, 1948.
23: Broadcasting Company presents Quiet, Please, which is written and directed by Willis Cooper and which features Ernest Chappell. Quiet, Please, for
7: today is called Meet John Smith, John.
23: I'm funny about snow, I guess. Yeah, I get sentimental about it, I get I get silly about it, the way some people get about pussy willows and persythia in the springtime, or the way you get about... Kids or dogs or Siamese cats, you know. I was looking at the post the other day and there were some pictures of the fighting in the bulge. Uh, When was it? Four years ago, Christmas time? Soldiers wearing white sheets over them, tanks painted white, the snow sifting down, the little pine trees piled thick with it. And I thought how awful Fellows having to fight and kill each other at Christmas time in the snow. And blood on the snow. There oughtn't to be blood on the snow. Snow's kind of, yeah, all right sacred. I always thought ever since I was a kid, I I hope it's snowing when I die. You ever feel that way? Snow. Peaceful snow. Yeah, it's the only thing on this earth, you know, that's really eternal. It's always here. Sure, it goes away from the lowlands in the hot weather, but up high there's always snow, always been snow. Why, even down on the equator, there's snow all year round. I can even remember the names of some of the mountains. Aconcagua, isn't that right? Aconcagua and Kilimanjaro. Remember, Hemingway even wrote a story about that. Snow's a Kilimanjaro, wasn't it? Sure, swell story. See, the man reads books. But, I was talking about snow, about how I'd always hoped it'd be snowing when I die. If five will get to ten It will be. I'd be a chump to bet against you, I know. Well, all that's a long way around to making a start. But the snow was the reason for it, you see. And the snow will be flying again pretty soon. I'll be glad to see it, even if It was New Year's Day in 1939. New Year's Day, and boy, what a hangover. Lucille and I had had some people in for New Year's Eve. We had a lot of champagne. They brought a lot of champagne. Somebody brought some other stuff. You ever try
4: avocado?
23: Avocado, it's a Holland Dutch concoction. It's kind of a custard. It's got schnapps in it. You eat it with a spoon, and somebody comes and hits you with a railroad tie. Johnny King had a kind of vodka I never heard about. Zubravka, I think it's called. It's got an infusion of buffalo grass, whatever that is in it. Yeah, it tastes wonderful, kind of like tobacco. The summer afternoon, in a field of hay, and boy, howdy. Champagne and avocado, and Zubravka. Headaches and hangovers and shooting pain. It was Lucille's idea to go over to Lafayette and drink or eat or whatever you do to it. Some onion soup. And, oh, boy, it was snowing. I felt some better as we walked over. We got inside and ordered and sat there by the front window at the marble top table and pushed the plush curtains aside and looked out. It was snowing awful hard, big fat flakes floating down, and people going by with their hats and their shoulders piled high. and Loving it, most of them. So we had some soup. We began to feel partially human again. Lucille leaned across the table.
18: Oh, that poor old fella.
23: What poor old fella? Me?
18: Nobody pays any attention to him. Where? Out there in the snow. See, there goes another one. Hey,
23: what are you talking about? The
18: old man out there in the corner. People are passing him off.
23: Well, what do you want him to do?
18: John, go give him a dime or something. Where? There.
23: Oh, gosh.
18: Isn't it a shame, begging in the snow?
23: Yeah, doggone it. See,
18: there goes another
23: one. Oh, gee. The poor old guy's probably starving. Oh,
18: now New Year's Day in the snow. Uh,
23: Order me some more onion soup. What? Uh, Oh, give me a dollar, will you?
18: Oh, five's the smallest I've got.
23: Give me that. Thanks. Uh, I'll be right back.
18: John, take your coat. Uh,
23: I don't need any coat, I said, and I busted right out and down the steps in the snow. No hat or anything. And I called to the poor old fellow. Hey, I called. Hey, Bud!
7: Oh, me, mister?
23: Yeah. Mister, have you got a dime? I'll tell you what, I'm about frozen. It's New Year's Day and... Here. Oh, my gosh, mister. Go get something to eat, Bud. Find yourself someplace to sleep and get warm.
7: Oh, gosh. A,
23: a fin. It's all right. New Year's present for my wife and me. Wife? Waving at you there in the window. Oh, oh,
19: thank you, Mom. Thank you, Mom. Thank you ever so much. Yes, Mom. Thank you. God bless you, Mom.
23: God bless you, too, mister. It's all right. We all have tough luck. Happy New Year's. Same to you, mister. Gosh, it's been a long
7: time since anybody said that to me. Your wife's tapping on the window. She wants you to come in before you catch your death of cold. Oh,
23: yeah. Well, good luck, bud. Hey, mister. What's your name? Yeah, what difference does that make? Go get, go get something to eat. Why?
7: I was just thinking I could walk over to Grace Church and I... You know, I, I could say a prayer for you, uh, sir. I, I was going to pray anyway and...
23: Thanks, partner. Uh, my name's John Smith.
7: It is? Well, what do you know about that? What? That's my name, too.
23: John Smith. Period. That's all. His name was John Smith? My name's John Smith. Then we met in the snow on New Year's Day ten years ago. Yeah, I know. I stood there in the snow and shivered a minute, watching him clump away through the snow, and I thought... Oh, boy, I thought John Smith there, yeah, but for the... whatever it is, goes this, John Smith. And Lucille down here busted the window rapping on it with her wedding ring making faces at me to come in before I froze, too. Well, so New Year's Day in 1939 was on a Sunday that made Monday the holiday and I didn't have to work. We just sat around the house loafing and drinking up what was left of the New Year's champagne. Along towards evening I said you mind if I go out for a walk, Lucille? She said, no, go ahead. So I put on my leather jacket and my overshoes, went out and walked in the snow. It was black and dirty already like it always is in New York. And I thought, well, maybe it'll still be nice over in Washington Square. So I ambled over there. Yeah, it was nice. The lights and stuff, you know. The tree was still there alongside the arch and... I brushed the snow off a bench and sat down for a minute. Wasn't anybody else in the square except me, I thought. But all of a sudden, somebody said, kind of quiet. You know how flat voices sound when there's snow. And this voice said, Hello, Mr. John Smith. And I looked up and darn if it wasn't my little old man. Little old John Smith. Well, I said, Hello yourself, John Smith. I thought that was you. Uh, sir? How you doing? Well, gee,
7: that thing you gave me yesterday brought me awful good luck, Mr. Smith. John.
23: Huh? John, that's my name. Oh. And what you mean, good luck? Well, I uh, got me a job shoveling snow this morning, and I made four bucks. That's fine.
7: Uh, I-, I could give you back part of the five but if you wanted me to. Ah, forget it. No, I, I, I'd really like to pay it back. I, I mean... Some other time. Well, uh, I got seven bucks altogether, mister. Uh, John. Well, what, what
23: if I bought you a drink? Would, would you mind? Well, say now. I don't mind if I do. Ah, swell. That's fine.
7: Yeah, you, you like to walk over to McSawley's with me, huh? I, I used to go there.
23: Well, well sir, I thought... So. A mug of ale would go all right, I thought. Yes, sir, and it'll make the old boy feel better. Yeah, I was full of holiday spirits. Come on, John Smith, I said. Let's not walk to McSorley's. Let's run. You know McSorley's on 7th Street, just off the Bowery there, my Cooper Union. Grand place. No women, no chromium plating. Just a bad old bar, a couple of cats... Four-inch sandwiches, hard-boiled eggs, and ale. Boy, howdy. Hmm. Yeah, and in the wintertime, the big old stove in the front room, red-hot and stilly-heating. So there we were in the back room, not quite so hot, but mighty fine. And a mug of ale apiece. That <sighs> was nice. I sure am grateful to you, John. Well, I said, shut up and let's have another ale. It's on me. And I want you to know that we had something under 800 mugs of that ale before the evening was over. And that ale is all right. And pretty soon we were talking like old pals. John Smith and me.
19: (laughs) Say, well, what do you do for a living, John?
23: I'm a newspaper man, John. I'm an old newspaper man myself. That's so. I said, and I didn't tell him I was in the classified department selling ads over the counter. Yeah, many years ago. Great business. I said and hoped he wouldn't pursue the subject. Well, it was. I, <laughs> I mean, it wasn't a reporter or anything like that. Oh, well, let's have another rail. Huh? Yeah, yeah, I, I'll get it.
7: I, I was in the classified department selling ads over the counter.
23: I pretty near dropped my mug, but he was on the way to the bar. And when he came back, he handed me mine, sat down, and grinned at me. Yes, sir. Just ten years ago tomorrow that I left
7: the business. That's so? Yeah. That Healy, that boss I had, he hated me. I'll go off. Do you remember it just as plain? We had a bottle stashed away in the men's room, and I went in to take a little snort, and this Healy came right in after me. Just as I was lifting up the bottle. You know what he did? Huh? He knocked that bottle right out of my hand and busted it all over the floor. Yeah, <laughs> well, that's what I said. You're, you're fired, he said. And I said, who cares about being fired, but why'd you have to bust the bottle? And with that, I swung on <laughs> oh. Yes, sir. You, you, you know what happened? Uh. He called me up and
19: apologized that night and begged me to come back to work.
23: What do you think of that? Ten years ago tomorrow. Uh, I smacked a cop once at the Hawthorne plant in Chicago. Good.
19: Say, I did that once, too, in Ackerman. I was
23: smoking in the yard, and he came up on his bicycle and called me out of my name. I knocked him right off his bike. Uh,
7: This cop I hit had a bike, too.
23: Isn't that funny? I remember so well. It was my birthday. I was 22 years old, 1923,
7: uh, April 2nd. I was 22 years old, too. Only it was in
23: 1913.
7: It was in April, too,
23: uh, I think. Uh, coincidence, huh? Uh, coincidence. Yeah. Uh, I used to have an awful temper. Yeah, me too, blazing. Uh, yeah. So you're a newspaper man. Well at once? Small ale? No. Uh, well, uh, well, maybe. Uh, mm. Say, John... You want me to get you a job, uh, I can do it. No, 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 thanks, John. I,
7: I'm laying low for a while. I don't want any publicity. Okay. Uh, any time, though. Thanks. Say, uh, say, I ever tell you about the time I was a newspaper man? No, that was me. Oh no, me. I got fired.
23: I ain't got fired yet. Well, I didn't have long to wait. Some of the boys kept the bottle stashed away in the men's room at the office, and Tuesday morning I slipped in there just to take a little snort. Miss Callahan came right in after me just as I was lifting up the bottle. You know what he did? He knocked that bottle right out of my hand and busted it all over the floor. You're fired, he says. I says, who cares about being fired? Why'd you have to bust the bottle? With that, I swung on him. (laughs) Heard that before? Yeah, so had I. Ten years after it happened to John Smith, it happened to John Smith. Yeah, I felt pretty low about it. But I got a funny thought in the back of my mind. What, what was it John Smith had said to me? You
19: know what happened? He called me up and apologized that night and begged me
23: to come back to work. All right, it was silly. But I decided I wouldn't tell Lucía right away. I sat alongside the telephone till 11 o'clock, waiting for a call. And the phone didn't ring once. I take you now a Wednesday evening, January 4th, 1939. The scene is again McSorley's. The actors are John Smith, John Smith, and several pewter mugs of Mr. McSorley's fine products. I am speaking. I say, say, John, did you tell me your boss called you up and apologized and asked you to come back to work? Uh, what boss? The one that fired you ten years ago.
4: Oh, oh.
23: Well, to be perfectly honest, Johnny, that was a little
7: malarkey I was feeding you. <laughs> you know, I'm inclined to exaggerate a little bit when I'm, you know, in my cups. Oh. <laughs> I'm Sorry. Uh, why? Why do you ask? Uh, I was just wondering. Just thinking, you know. No, no, he, he really didn't call me up. But I met a fellow on the street a week or two later, and, and I got a job in a hotel, a night
23: clerk. <laughs> I could tell you more things about a hotel. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> Say. What? That fight you told me about with a policeman on the bicycle, like the one I had, uh, was that phony too? No, no.
7: sir. acting in the High, April 2nd, 1913. And I got a job three days later.
23: Motorman on a streetcar. Coincidence. I smacked a policeman on a bicycle ten years later to the day, and three days after that, I get a job. As a motorman in Cicero. And this time, ten years later, after John Smith got fired from his newspaper, I met a fellow on the street a couple of weeks later. And I got a job. (laughs) I hope all these dates aren't getting you all balled up, but if you just remember ten years, you'll have it. This all happened almost ten years ago. On January 26th, Thursday, Lucille came running into the hotel where I was working as a night clerk, I could tell you more things about hotels.
18: Oh, John, he's dying. Uh,
2: who's dying? That
18: poor old man, that John Smith. You know, the one we gave the $5 to New Year's Day at the Lafayette? Uh, he's been hurt.
2: Why, how do you know? They
18: just called the house, and they keep asking... Who called the house? Bellevue Hospital. He's in there, and he's not expected to live, and he keeps calling for you. Oh,
23: that's too bad. Can
18: you go right over?
23: Why, you know I can't. I've only been on the job here for two days, but well, my oh, gosh, Oh, John, I...
18: think of that poor old man lying there all alone, and... Uh... I
23: can't do it. I can't leave. I... Wait, uh, I'll call up Bellevue. Oh, good. Uh, uh, stay there.
18: Hurry. <clears throat> He's in the emergency ward.
12: Hello, Bellevue. Emergency ward, please. Hello, I, I'm calling about a John Smith. What?
18: This afternoon, hit by a truck at University and Eight. This afternoon,
23: hit by a truck at University of Eight. Eight. Yeah. My name? John Smith. No, John Smith's a patient, too. Uh, We've got the same names. All right. Yes, that's right. Thanks. How is he? He's checking.
18: Good.
12: Yes. Hello. Oh.
23: Yes. Yes, I guess I'm the one. Yes, that's right. My my wife said you called. Okay, thanks. Yes, I'll come over in the morning and get. Okay. Thanks. What? He's dead. And I went and got the things John Smith had left to me. No, not much. John Smith, no address, it said on a tank. Just John Smith, no address tight little bundle that looked like papers. a shaky note scrawled across the wrappings. Dear friend John, it said. Dear friend John, you're a mighty good, something or other, I couldn't read it. This is all I got to leave you, it said. Maybe you could use this stuff. You're a newspaper man. Signed, John Smith. The seal sniffled a little and I guess I must have bawled too, especially when I cut the string and Three dollar bills fell out. I picked them up and put them in my pocket. A tattered little old notebook with the leaves falling out, across the cover, the legend John Smith, his diary. Well, I, I wasn't a newspaper man anymore, but.
18: Why don't you go to bed now, John? You can read it tonight on the job. It'll help pass the time away.
23: You need something to pass the time away those long nights alone behind the desk of a third-rate hotel. You need something besides phone calls, complaining there's no hot water, make those people turn down their radio, what time is it, call me at 7 o'clock. You need somebody to talk to through those sticky early morning hours when there's nothing to read but the hotel guide and the women's page of last Friday's newspaper. I turned first to the period in the diary when John had been a hotel night clerk. Ten years before me. John, it seemed, was no angel in his earlier days. No angel indeed. There was a girl at his hotel. Uh, Some little town in Delaware. A girl who took his eye. Helen, uh, a waitress. Blonde, the diary said. Blonde and petite. And he got acquainted. He got very well acquainted. And there was an assistant housekeeper in my hotel... Mickey, her name was. Black hair, snapping Irish eyes, and a laugh like Tommy Bartlett on the radio. Mickey, pretty Mickey. I used to sing to her when she was going off duty. Ah, ah that old song. And a scene John Smith got in trouble over his Helen. White trouble. The diary hinted at certain unpleasantnesses ten years before. John in his diary always insisted righteously that he loved his wife. I love Grace, one paragraph read. This is only a passing fancy. Helen is a lovely girl, but I love Grace. Well, I love Lucille. I must read more of this This old romance, I thought sleepily. I put my arms down on the switchboard, laid my head on them, and dropped off to sleep. And woke up with Mickey standing at the counter laughing at me. Hey, wake up and go home to your wife, she said. It's morning and I got work to do.
18: John, have you read all that poor old man's diary yet?
23: He's not a poor old man. He was just ten years older than I am.
18: Is that so? He looks lots older.
23: Ten years older than me to the day.
18: Have you read it all yet? Oh,
23: no, why?
18: Well, I'd like to read it too.
23: Well, when I get finished with it.
18: All right. Is it interesting? Sort of. Uh, John. Yes, dear? When are you going to get a raise?
23: Well, gosh, I've only been there such a short time. But Are we pretty broke?
18: Well, a collector was here for the furniture, and I haven't paid the rent yet this month.
23: You haven't?
18: Oh, darling, it's awfully hard on your salary at the hotel, you know. Well, it's the
23: best I can do with oh, this am
18: I'm sorry, darling. What are you thinking about?
23: I was just thinking. I might... You know what I was thinking about? I was remembering a page in John Smith's diary. Today was February 7th, 1939. The entry in John Smith's diary for February 7th, 1929. I knew it practically by heart. They've got
4: plenty
7: of money. There isn't a chance in the world that they're ever finding it out.
23: Besides, when I get on my feet, I'll pay it back. I'll take 20 tonight, 20 tomorrow night. Pretty soon I'll have a hundred. And so I took 20 and 20 and 20 from the till. And I phoned the records, and I told Lucille I'd borrowed the money from a friend. That's what John Smith did ten years before. And it said so in his diary. That diary was a very strange thing. I read that John Smith broke his arm in 1908. I broke mine in 1918. John Smith was married in 1925. I was married in 1935. John Smith stole money in 1929. Ten years later, I did the same thing. John Smith had a girl named Helen in 1929. And in 1939, I had a girl named Mickey. And in 1930, John Smith fell heir to a very tidy little fortune. His great-uncle left it, I didn't even know I had a great Uncle Norbert, but I wasn't at all surprised when 1940 came around and I got $30,000 from Uncle Norbert's estate. And so Lucille and I did very well, thank you, for the next few years. Lucille and I, and Mickey and I, just like John Smith did with his Helen and his Grace. Somehow or other, I didn't look at John's diary for years. He got put in a bookcase. You know how things are. Sure, maybe it was that kind of subconscious stuff you read about. Maybe I didn't want to read it, or my subconscious didn't want me to. So, there it sat till last Wednesday. I pulled out a book, and the diary fell onto the floor. Well, I said, and I picked it up. I turned to the back of the diary, 1938, ten years ago. And before I knew it, I was engrossed in John's account of how Grace had found out about Helen and what happened. And the door opened and Lucille stormed in.
18: Well, huh? you and your girlfriend, Mickey.
23: Mickey? What are you talking Don't
18: about? Don't try to stall me. I know all about her and about you and you, you. Lucia, listen. Don't try to deny it. I know all about it. I'm going to fix you. What are
4: you going to do? I'm going
18: to call the newspapers. I'm going to... I'll
7: show you. Put that
4: phone
18: down. I'll show you. I'll tell everybody in town. I'll divorce you. Put that, that, that phone I'll... down. I will not. Lucia. Get away from me. I'll take you. Give me that phone. Hello? 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 Um... Hello?
23: And John Smith's diary. And there on the desk beside Lucille.
7: I tried to get the phone away from Grace, but I couldn't for a minute. And then I hit her with a desk lamp.
23: And... and the date was September 29th, 1938. Ten years ago, last Wednesday, the day that John Smith became a murderer, as well as a thief. And me? Yes, I took the diary away with me. If anybody found it. Well, they haven't found me yet. They won't. Of course, I know. John Smith's diary said they didn't find him either. The last entry in it is about the kind man named John Smith who gave him $5 on New Year's Day 1939. Well, so I've got a little while left. They won't catch up with me. And I know what's going to happen to me. Ten years ago, on January 26th, 1939, John Smith died. On January 26th, 1949, I hope it'll be snowing. Oh. please story was meet john smith
7: john it was written and directed by willis cooper the man who spoke to you was ernest chapel
23: and g swain gordon played the other john smith Lucille was nancy sheridan as usual music for quiet please is played by albert Berman. now for a word about next week here's our writer director willis cooper Thank you for listening to Quiet, Please. Next week, I have a story for you about Beezer's cellar. And so, until next week at this same time, I am quietly yours, Ernest Chappell.
22: And now a listening reminder.
7: The dramatic battle between law enforcement agencies and the underworld continues on David Harding Counter-Spy, which you can hear over your ABC station this afternoon. This is ABC, the American Broadcasting Company.
0: That was Meet John Smith, John, a story about a man with a lot of dates to keep track of, in particular, his last. That was Quiet, Please, from October third, 1948, a series that could accomplish a tone with just a few voices and an organist. Light work for the Foley operator most of the time on Quiet, Please. Next week, Orson Welles and the Mercury Theater with their adaptation of Commander Ellsberg's 1938 bestseller, Hell on Ice. I'm Norman Gilliland. I hope you can be with me then for more adventures in sound from Skywave Audio Theater.